This fic is rated ah. Uh... For March 9th, 2007, this is episode 4 of Potherfic Weekly. Welcome to the place where the story never ends. Hey Ron, the next time you're freaked at me for calling you out on the Quidditch pitch. Just remember that time. And welcome back to Mother Fig Weekly. I am Ryan. I'm Renna. I'm Jen. Hi. And, and Jen is very happy to be here this week. Jen will be sticking around for a while. She will be here uh, with us every week, and hopefully, we'll have Kim back by next week. Apparently. Uh, Kim's computer exploded and took out all of the computers around her, too. It was a nasty bit of business. Basically, we could actually rename the podcast Ryan and all those Southern women, but... You say that like it's a bad thing. I, but, okay, let me put it to you this way. If anyone listens to this podcast and can't tell when it's me who's speaking... <laughs> <laughs> like we get a new transcriber and they're like, when is Ryan speaking? That that, that just does not bode well for me. Uh, Jen, do we have any news this week for everybody? Of course we do. What do we have? We had lots of new stuff on the forum. The forum has actually become a really exciting happen in place. Ryan and Danielle did commentaries this weekend of the first and second movies. They're right off PotherfickWeekly.com on the downloads page. I have to warn you all, in the first installment for Philosopher's Stone, it was at the end of a very long work day. Sometime near the end of the movie, Danielle had to nudge me to keep me awake. So for Chamber of Secrets the next night, I overcompensated and I was heavily caffeinated throughout the movie. So download, you know, for your own pleasure. Um, it's possible at one point one of us may have screamed, Petunia is a whore, and I'm not going to tell you what the context is, so you just have to download it and listen for yourself. And I actually sent some emails back and forth to Xenia today, and this is actually Jen's idea. In order to prevent having a 19-hour interview with Arabella and Xenia in a few weeks, they have graciously agreed to start answering your questions now. So send us your voicemails, send us your emails, send us um, your comments, posts in the forums, any questions you have that are centric to the chapters that we are discussing. So if you read you know, chapter 15 and you have a question about that chapter, email or send in your questions for Arabella and Xenia, and they will answer them uh, on the show in the episodes to come. If you have any overarching questions, you know, how did you write the story? Is there going to be a sequel? You know, whether you eat for breakfast, save those for the interview. <laughs> but just so we can get the... What do you eat for breakfast? Well, now aren't you well, at least a bit curious? Who knows? We might find out through that that, you know, I don't know, strawberry Pop-Tarts can lead you to great works of literary genius. This is true. Every fanfic writer in the Northern yeah, Hemisphere is going to run out and grab Shaw's strawberry Pop-Tarts the next morning and just, you know, buy out the entire <laughs> stock. So it's, it's, <laughs> so it's definitely a good thing. So send in your questions now, and uh, hopefully we'll get some answers in uh, by episode five. So why don't we jump into our episode discussion. Tonight we're covering chapters 12 through 15 of After the End, uh, chapter 12 being entitled Care of Magical Creatures. 
And it's actually very interesting just the way we're chopping up these episodes because, Jen, you and I were talking in last week's episode about what Remus knew and when did he know it and how interesting it would be to have one of those chapters from his perspective so we could see exactly what he thinks Mm -hmm. of Ginny's peculiar behavior and so forth. And now the next chapter uh, we get starts off from Remus's perspective. So I just think that was very uh, lucky on our part that we got to dwell over that for a week. Definitely. One of the things that really caught me about this chapter is, well, and it's difficult to say this because we still don't know what's going on here, but I think that the way that Jenny is reacting, not to Remus, but to what's going on, I think they did a really good job of capturing the franticness that she's feeling. It's very bipolar almost on her end because in one you know swoop she is calm and collected as though she's made you know the wolf's bane potion a thousand times and you know in the other you know moments she is completely almost unhinged it's very unlike how she is viewed by harry especially you know earlier in chapter three where she seems calm cool collected I like how this chapter starts. Remus feeling really odd, knocking on his own steady. I thought she's prepared this thing and she's gotten into her school robes. Like, it's a very formal affair for her to go talk to Remus here. And it's interesting, too, because all we know is Remus, I think I said this in the last episode, he almost seems like Bob Newhart. You know, he's just a very reserved guy. Seems like he knows everything. Seems like every response is completely measured. And we see in Chapter Mm -hmm. 7 just how broken this character is and just how many issues this character is dealing with below the surface. But he does such a good job of, like Harry does, bottling all of that up. So when you see him in Chapter 8, when he is completely cool you know, in the midst of Ginny, you know, doing all of these very strange things, recognizing the dead seeds and and the live seeds and so forth. He responds very much like a teacher. He doesn't really give away his cards. And now you see him in this chapter. His fear is that Ginny will be afraid of him like so many other people were. He's afraid that she'll see him as the wolf. You really get to see how on the surface he's so calm, but just below the surface, he's a mess. We're seeing him calm and collected and stuff. And then in this chapter, we get to see his worst side, his thing that really completely unhinges him, and it just knocks him over. I really love the way that Arabella and Zenia describe Remus's reaction when Ginny hands him the recipe for the Wolfsbane potion. You see the tension rise mm-hmm. up in his blood, he shudders, and it says that he hates himself again, which I thought was just so interesting. The minute he is reminded that he is a werewolf, he instantly hates himself. And you just see the reaction in him is so different from, you know, the you know the Uncle Mooney character he's been playing in the last few chapters. He's angry. He's filled with that self-venom. And I think this is very interesting of Arabella and Xenia, and um, I believe they did this in the earlier part of the chapter. He recognizes that the wolf is a dangerous creature. He recognizes that the wolf is full of murderous tendencies and he knows that he is a good and decent person but when that wolf comes out he becomes a murderer and there's just very specific references to the fact that he believes that that is deep down who he is he tries to deny it but deep down he believes he is the wolf he believes he is the murderer and it's just the most basic building block of him he kind of bottles up but once a month it comes out with everything that we saw uh, back in chapter seven with, with just the lonely existence and the girls at hogwarts you know wanted to date with the wolf and just completely disregarded his feelings it just makes you feel even so much worse for remus just with everything this poor character must be going through all the time yeah i think he puts a lot of it on himself 
you read enough Harry Potter novels, you know that Harry is always the one who overburdens himself with guilt and tortures himself. And you just want to run up and give Remus a hug and tell him it's not him. And I think he gets that. But deep down, he's been becoming this murderous wolf every month for decades. And just the impact it's had on him that really just shows how attached he is to this Wolvesbane potion and why he is so determined to always take it so he will not become that creature again. It just highlights just what an amazing thing he's doing by agreeing to let Ginny make it for him. Why does he trust her so much? Why is he putting his faith in her? It goes far beyond just, you know, a teacher helping out a student. I want to go off of what Ryan just said. One of my big notes that I've written here is, is Remus too trusting here? Jenny is asking him questions, and he, although it makes him slightly uncomfortable, he understands that it's only natural for someone to ask these questions and, and things like that. He's gotten mature enough and used to natural curiosity that he's really unsettled by the fact that she's taking it that step farther. And he has to, he has to really dig deep to find whether or not he should be insulted or not. Yeah. Whether he should, you know, like whether it's too personal? Well, it, it starts off directly as it's too personal. And I think if you read simplistic fanfics, you know, Remus is always, you know, you know, brotherly Uncle Remus, and he's your best buddy, and people ask him about the wolf, and they're nervous to do so. And he's always like, no, 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 any questions, you know, I'm, I'm open about it. And I think this fic takes a much more reserved approach approach with Remus. I think it's a more correct approach with Remus. Everyone knows he's a werewolf, but th- this is the thing you just never talk about. It's the giant elephant in the room. Y- you don't face it. It's not really there. And you can just imagine him about to jump up there and tell her, you know, this is a private situation. And there's a great line. The only one who gets to talk about the wolf is Sirius. And it just shows there's a reference to back when Remus is at Hogwarts, he's in bed and he's, his face is tear stained and, you know, he just became the wolf and his friends, his roommates, all Gryffindors found out about it and he's afraid they're going to walk away from him and never come back and they all embrace him, they all stick by him, they learn to become anime guy just to be with him and they're the only friends he had and now Sirius is the only one that's left. Sirius has earned the right to talk about this. Ginny hasn't. I just, I thought that was just terrific. You know, you know just the way these characters are facing each other here. I, I would agree with that. Not even Harry has earned the right to talk about the wolf. Yes. You know, and then here, all of a sudden, here's this girl, this kid, whom Remus hasn't even really interacted with yeah. since she was in her second year. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to episode three, uh, but in the beginning. Uh, yes. You did. did. Yeah, uh, we talked in the beginning about what a great job Arabella and Zenya do in that they don't make off like Remus and Ginny are best friends because they met each other once. You know, he had her in class, you know, years ago, and they're still essentially strangers with each other despite everything they went through. And now someone who he barely knows is, you know, handing him the Wolfsbane potion. It's extremely inappropriate. Yeah. It shows that he's surprised with himself that he's actually agreeing to do this. He doesn't know why he thinks this is a good idea. And everything logical in his head is saying, okay, no, this is stupid, this is suicide, but... Oh, it's even the line, right? When he he says, and I'm going to have to let her down, you know, easily, and then he opens his mouth and says, of course you can do it. It's just like, what? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and you can tell that Ginny felt that way as well. Yeah, she's like, uh, uh, huh? Like, I don't think, I think she's kind of like Eloise Midgen here. I don't think she walked into this room with any expectation that she'd get her way, and then she got it, and she's like, what? Yeah, and it's just that shock. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I remember reading this, and 
not actually understanding that Jenny wanted to make it for Remus. I thought, oh, she just wants to make it, to, just to make it, just to have his permission to do it in the house because it is kind of personal. And then all of a sudden it's kind of like, but, I, you know, I want to make it for you. Well, it's interesting because <laughs> all the characters have that reaction too. Remus's reaction is, I think at some point, um, well, you don't want me to drink it, do you? Yeah. And the same thing with Sirius. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, it's that whole... Well, yeah, sure, you can make it. Go right ahead. Knock <laughs> yourself out. You, you you don't expect me to actually consume it. Oh, it's a great one, too, where you know, when Sirius pops into the room and, and he looks over all of the vials and all of the potions that Ginny has out on the desk and says, well, this is a difficult one to practice on. And then when he realizes that Sirius intends yeah. to actually drink it, his exact response when Sirius says to him, you can't be serious, Remus's only comeback line is, no, you're serious. It's just like... Bad line, oh. man. <laughs> it's such a huge pun. It's hysterical. Oh. Every time, though. But I want to talk about Sirius coming into the room. They talk about him. He suddenly started using the office to operate in instead of the main room so that they could right. have then, some time uh, together. I mean, is that what it is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was a little strange. Uh, not strange. Just that the grown-ups, you know, would want to have a few quiet moments before seeing the chaos of the house. I think it was a little bit of literary license on behalf of Arabella and Xenia. I think they needed to move Sirius around to get him where they needed him, and I think they needed him to mm. pop into the middle of the room to really start that arc he has with Ginny, just over you know his anger with her for wanting to make the potion. I think they just needed him to pop into the room, and they needed to explain why he wasn't using the flu downstairs. So I just got the sense that was a little bit... It's kind of like Draco Malfoy being the next-door neighbor. So it, it looks a little odd on the surface. I just got, got the sense <laughs> they needed to find a way to get him into the room there. I have to admit that I, I kind of hoped that Sirius would fall on someone like Harry did. <laughs> Can you imagine Ginny standing there and she finally gets permission to make the potion and Sirius appears and completely takes her out and she like picks herself up the floor and is like, not again! <laughs> I know, it could be the new running gag. <laughs> right. Chapter 13 opens with Ginny like walking down the stairs with a cane because more, more people have popped in on her. <laughs> Hermione could come up with some protective aura or something for her. Oh, missing scenes. I think we should just get Julie in the forum to write all of our missing uh, moments for us. (laughs) Or the what if moments. There you go. No, I do want to say I love the moment where uh, so Sirius pops into the room, narrowly missing Ginny. Remus really sticks up for Ginny. He says, I'm taking the potion, that's that. Sirius becomes enraged at this information. And I think one of the best things about these four chapters in particular is each character flies off the handle, and each character has their own reason to do so that you may not think is the reason why. So it's interesting just because at one point yeah. you're furious at Sirius for being mean to Jenny, but then you completely understand everything Sirius is going through, and you actually feel bad for him. And then you keep going back and forth. So I think you as the reader, you just you don't know whose side you're supposed to be on in these chapters because everybody's right and everybody's wrong all at the same time. I do like the characterization of Ginny in this chapter because she is standing her ground she is doing this Remus has given his permission that's it and it comes across to Sirius as though she's completely pompous and completely disregarding Mm -hmm. Remus's life and on Ginny's 
you know, perspective, this is Remus's decision and he's made it. And I love the moment where, you know, Sirius grabs the book off the shelf. You know, it describes, you know, all of the werewolves who have died and all the different ways this potion can be mismade. It reminds me of my mother when I was taking Driver's Ed. Every morning she seemed to always be reading about everyone who was killed in a car accident the night before. And I she, know exactly what you mean. <laughs> it just came across exactly like that. And um, I like the point where he hands her the book and he's just on the verge of losing control. And she takes the book and she looks at him and says, thank you, and just flows out of the room. And Remus, you know, thought it necessary to, you know, to think to himself, you know, that reminds me of another redhead I once knew. And it just shows that Jenny is becoming Lily Potter every day. And I just thought that was, <laughs> I just thought that was a great moment where finally Remus kind of pulls Sirius back from the edge and gets him calmed down and he tries to point out the good things. Maybe Ginny will be successful. I'll get to stay here and I can use the shed and I can be around Padfoot again. And he kind of baits uh, Sirius, I think, with bringing up Padfoot. And then Sirius, yeah. you know, insists that Padfoot should be there with him when the next time he transforms since so won't have it because it could be too dangerous. And you just... It's just such a complicated scene because at first you just want Sirius to go away. This isn't his affair. But if you think about it, Sirius has earned the right to be in this room more than anyone else alive. And it's just it's yeah. just such a well-written scene. Nobody is on the right side. Well, and he's pointing it out yeah. a lot. I mean, as a reader, we know that Remus turns into a werewolf and it's really bad and horrible. And, you know, and then it's once a month and then he's okay again. And we forget how actually horrible it, it really is and how dangerous it is and how... The Wolfsbane potion is so rare and important. I think the scene was so important they put it in here so that we could take a step back and go, you know what? This is actually something very, very serious and and, and to show us also how far Jenny's going to, to come. And I like that they show it through, they show how serious it is through serious. Um, <laughs> you were cracking up saying that. I know. I always giggle when I use it okay. and when I'm not writing it. You know what I mean, though? I, I, no, I, I, I really like they show it through the friend's point of view and not the actual guy who's going through it. He's just, Sirius is just enraged that Remus is going to let some little kid do this after all the years of them doing you know, trying to make it safe for everybody. Ginny Weasley has the problem that every other character in the story besides Harry sees her as an eight-year-old girl and doesn't think she's able to do anything, and Ginny's done more in her young life than most wizards would in an entire lifetime, and I think she's earned the right to speak, too, although Sirius has certainly earned the right, you know, for everything he's done for Remus to, to take her on over it. Yeah, I think and sometimes we forget how... Uh, young these characters are from the way they have to to be adults and then there are times where you just constantly remind it that they actually are still immature they're they're kids they're still kids yeah they're still kids Rena, have you ever been 15 years old <laughs> listen you yes that was so not what i was trying to say when uh, i said okay. that and it's the new running gag in the forum. It is the new running gag. <laughs> and just um, who who else has been fifteen years old? <laughs> I think. Well, one of the things that I think was really one of the more important aspects of this scene is because this is where Remus really says, you know, why am I doing this? Because I I want to do this. It is it's worth it to me. Mm-hmm. If 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 I can give Ginny a chance and. 
this is my risk. I've lived the last years and I haven't done anything like that. Mm. I never took any chances. I lived very safely because I was mm -hmm. afraid. And this is my chance to, to take a chance, to take a risk and to do something that's, you know, weird and crazy and all that kind of stuff. But that just might make all the difference in the world. He needs to feel alive again. I think you have... All of these characters, I talked about this in a previous episode, you have these characters during a time of terrorism, they can't even go outdoors because it's not safe, and now they have options, they need to feel as though they, they're real people again, and then you look at Remus, that's so much more difficult with Remus, Remus can't work, he can't go where he wants to go because there might be a full moon, he has to live you know, once a month in the basement, the dirty basement of an apothecary somewhere, surrounded by people he is uncomfortable around, Remus's life is so much more held hostage than any of the other characters, Remus needs to feel as though he can make a decision and follow it through, he needs to get some type of control over his life, so Remus needs to do this. Well, and this is a decision that Remus is allowed to make, yeah. you know? What, what I really liked about this scene was how much it showed how, although Sirius is Remus's best friend, I think he says Sirius was a good man if a haunted one, but he was still very young in many ways. And, you know, you keep going, wow, Remus is the parent. Remus is the grown-up, the mm -hmm. dad. And you forget that sometimes Remus sees Sirius at 24. And Remus feels a lot older than him, I think, yeah. in some ways. And I think this was him pulling a parent card. I've been around forever. <laughs> yeah. I've grown up, and you haven't had that opportunity. I'm not going to rub it in, but... I've been dealing with everything, and, and this is something I've earned. I deserve it. It really shows you what we're dealing with here when the guy who's been a werewolf, you know, for the past so many decades is, is the person who speaks of, you know, the reasonable experience. It's just, it shows you, you know, just how fractured all of these characters are that Remus is, you know, quote unquote, the normal one who can speak from an anchored base. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, that does not bode well for the other characters. <laughs> So let's move on to the next section, which is the minister's office, and we move into Bill Weasley's perspective. And I yes. just, I just think this is such a great scene. It it does not match the towel, although it's still a very interesting scene because it introduces some of my favorite characters. You it, you see Bill speaking with Arthur and Sirius and Moody, and just how haunted Sirius actually is. He is so obsessed about the Dementors. He he will not accept anything less than their total destruction. If it's not possible, he'll take on leading the department that will find a way, even if it completely uh -huh. sucks away, you know, his sleep time. This is something that needs to be done so well and, and so quickly. And one of my favorite characters is then introduced. That would be uh, Secretary Privy... Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown. Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown. <laughs> and here's the thing. It is not Rose K. Brown. It is Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown. It is one mouthful. You have to get the entire thing out there. And I don't believe I'm giving anything away here, although if I am, oops. Uh, Rose K. Brown, I believe, is actually Lavender's older sister. Yeah. She was a Slytherin, and she was one of those Slytherins that everybody kind of liked. You can tell that she was she's probably... She's a fair one. She's a fair Slytherin. Um, you just get the sense she was student body president, even though I'm fairly sure we don't have one. She was head girl, I believe. She was head girl. Um, and she brings a clipboard to bed with her. You just know that. This clipboard does not leave her hands. She wears a pocket protector. She wears a pocket protector and shoves that clipboard in it. She is just such a cool character. I She's like her a lot. She's a very type A personality. <laughs> yes. Speaking no. of type B personalities, uh, Mick and Charlie soon wander in. 
right. And, and they just oh, have to sorry. complain because Arthur told Lawrence, who I'm assuming is the butler, to... I, I love this. We have no one working at the ministry, but Arthur somehow gets a butler. I thought he was the security guard. Is he? The security, it's the security officer. Okay. Yeah, it says the security officer. The security officer, okay. Lawrence. So he, he tells Lawrence... It's funnier, though, to think about him as... <laughs> Jeeves the butler. Uh, he's, he's my yeah. favorite character in this scene. Lawrence? Lawrence. <laughs> Lawrence is your favorite character in the scene? <laughs> Actually, I think that he is hysterical. Like, he deals with Rose, you know, and he's used to it. And then he's out there arguing with Charlie. He's a behind-the-scenes guy who's got a big part. <laughs> I think you really wish this scene was actually written from Lawrence's perspective. We'd have no idea what goes on in the actual office. The entire scene would take place from the foyer, but I think you would just enjoy it so much more that way. I just had to point that out, that Lawrence... Hey, you know what? It's the ancillary characters that make this story really great. It really is. There are no bit parts. There are none. You can tell chapter chapter 26... Chapter 26 is entirely from Lawrence's perspective. He actually comes in and saves the day. <laughs> and falls in love with the woman at the laundromat because this is love, actually. But um. Okay, so we get into um, serious talking about the dragons. How long are they going to have to have these dragons here? And Sirius is just determined that this is going to be a temporary problem. Right. Right. He wants and all the money and focus to go towards research and development. Not just holding them back. No, I'm sorry. There's a great discussion there about how Dementors are unofficially immortals. They they can't be killed. So if they can't be killed, what do we do with them? Yeah. How do you kill something well, that can't die? Yeah. What are they? Yeah. I still would like to know what they are. Well, that's one thing. They're immortals. But they're not. Yeah, this is one thing this fic does so amazingly well is take any other fic. You have the Dementors, you know, you have, you know, the aftermath of a war, you have the Wolfsbane potion, you have the werewolf. These are just mechanical things. But Arabella and Xenia just get in there and they make this so much more complicated. You have the Wolfsbane potion, which is potentially fatal. You have Remus and just this entire complex reaction he's had to having to take this potion over, you know, 30, 40 years. And now you have the Dementors. They're immortal. You can't kill them. So what do you do after a war? And they base an entire fic around it. I mean, I just think it's so awesome that they don't take the easy way out and hit the reset button and just deal with these things in a couple of lines. These problems aren't going away. I just think that's great. I agree. I think that, you know, since they, I mean, this was really a world of their own creating because like we said in the first episode, this is after the series ends. This is after Mm -hmm. everything ends. And so it could have been, okay, well, I don't want to deal with the Dementors. Let's just, um, oh, magic potion. They're all dead. Yeah, <laughs> <You know>? exactly. <laughs> but instead, we have an actual problem, and they have to fix it. And I think it's, I think they did a really good job in creating a very viable, very real problem that I'm sure is very pertinent to the people in the wizarding world. If you read the Half-Blood Prince in the first chapter, I think Joe has a there's a throwaway line about how all the dementors are breathing and they're free and they're, you know, covering and saturating the you know, England. You know, you think about it, you're like well, God, why didn't you have Moody there with a few oars? And they could have held the whole Because you're thinking about it through the after the end perspective. You know, the, it's, a, it's a throwaway line in the book, but, you know, this is, we, we base an entire 45 chapter fic around this. I don't know. Well, I mean, I was talking, yeah. I was talking to Ryan the other day about this, and we were even 
speculating that Deathly Hallows will, you know, be around about the mentors, a big part of it. You know, they're going to come back. Lawrence the butler, you know, opens the door admitting Mick and Charlie, who were very upset that they didn't get an official red carpet announcement. Um, who they're late. Again. Oh, they're half an hour late, but they're so, oh. they're always so late. It's it's you you, you can set their watch the by them. People operating on Jenny aspect of the story. This is the thing that is the funny continuous plot line uh, that, that Charlie, Charlie yeah. is late, and at least he's not wearing a towel in this scene. Much to our chagrin. And he's clothed. And and he brings he brings uh, Mick along with him, and I just you have to love Mick sitting down next to. Secretary Privy Rose Gay Brown, because he just looks right over at her. Hi, Miss Rosie, <laughs> and you can just tell she wants to just beat him over the head senselessly with her clipboard. Oh yeah, but he flirts with her. He, he to- likes her. He totally flirts with her. They get into zoo with the dragons, and uh, apparently they break open the budget, and they you know they figure out that they can move a team of dragons and move a, a team of keepers to Azkaban to um, fly on patrol to keep the Dementors at bay. And uh, she insists on having, you know, more people than needed in case, you know, of injury or, you know, sickness or so forth. Yeah. And then she mentions we need to have, you know, three dragons. And, you know, they say, well, no, we need more than that, you know, for the different shifts and, you know, so forth. And she's like, well, what could possibly go wrong with a dragon? And you can just see Charlie's eyes bug out of his head like like you're they're messing with too. his people. Like, dragons, yeah, you're waiting for the line. Dragons are people, too. And he's like, they could get pregnant. <laughs> that, that, I think, is one of my favorite lines in the whole story. Because it's just like, I think you're grabbing his straws there, darling. <laughs> They could get pregnant. You don't know. So eventually we decide we need, like, a support staff of, like, 30 people and nine dragon riders. And I think, whether we need, like, nine dragons to be brought in. She, at first, is, is, I love how they add that natural skepticism that people have when family members are employed. You know, she's like, is this your other son? All these people are suddenly helping us that are your family. You know, she's very into rules. She's very into rules, and yeah, she wants to know why Bill's there, he doesn't work for the ministry, you know, Charlie's coming too, yeah, and Arthur pretty much sticks out for them and says they're experts in their fields, we don't have a lot of staff, but yeah, Rose K. Brown's a very, is, is a hard stickler for the rules, and I think every idea she's ever had in her life has been based around, you know, the, the, the Ministry of Magic's, you know, fiscal budget, I mean, she's... Well, they compare, Arthur, who was it, was it Char- Bill? I think it's Bill. Bill compares her to Percy. Because of the way Arthur looks at her. Yeah, and there's a point where he gets that real patient look on his face. Yeah, and they all kind of feel a little sad. They all kind of look down at the floor a little bit because they realize everybody else is thinking about Percy a little bit. I think it's good that this family is still, you know, they're still, they lost a son. They're still grieving, and they're to a point where they can joke about it. But Everyone still has this attitude of reverence. And this is something we said in the first episode. This is a character who traditionally was really given the shaft. No one gave a crap about Percy. It was all about the other characters. And a lot of people ended up killing him off just because no one likes writing him. But they did it in a way that he ended up being a Death Eater or he died defending Cornelius Fudge or doing something else that was, you know, not what really, you know, not what happened according to this story. Yeah, they let him go out 
honorably and they let him go out realizing his mistakes and choosing the right path. And I think you're, I think that's a really good word that you used. I think they all have a lot of reverence for Percy now. They never would have expected they would have ever had it. They probably feel not guilt, but they feel pain that they could never have told him that in person before he died. And, um, yeah, I just love the moment when Bill thinks of Percy when he listens to Rose Gay Brown. And then I really like the moment when uh, Rose and Arthur kind of go back and forth about funding issues. Um, the Magical Council wants to use the funding to help those poor war orphans, and Arthur wants to use the funding to help stop the Dementors. And he eventually makes the statement, the orphans are in as much danger from the Dementors as anything else. We're using the funding for the Dementors. I just think that's there's a moment when Bill smiles and says, my father isn't the stand-in Minister of Magic. My father is the Minister of Magic. And there's a lot of great fi- family dynamic in this chapter. Yeah. In, in, in that, what we were saying, I think that uh, what I appreciate about Arabella and Zinnia is that they don't just kill someone off and, and then forget about them. They're not just... You know, I mean, so many fanfic writers just kill somebody and... That's it. They're dead. And this, they write reality so well and so believable. And, you know, when someone dies, yeah, everybody kind of goes to the mourning phase. And then people actually talk about the good times and they laugh about stupid things that they did. And, you know, and I love that she just writes that in. You know, they think about Percy. They think about the good things. He's not just dead. And it, and it does show that. The pain that they all feel, even if it's just a glance or an eye going to the floor, you know, just the little things, and you know how much it means to all of them. Oh, it's with Snape, too, and if you think about it, both Snape and Percy are both dead when this fic begins. Hagrid, a lot of these characters don't even live in this fic, and they're just so important because it doesn't matter who they were when they were alive. It matters the effect they had on the people who survived. I just think it's one of the reasons this is such a great fic. One thing I do want to throw in is that um, as we we decide that we're going to use the Dementors, we decide that we're going to forego the funding on the war orphans, uh, and, you know, Rose K. Brown kind of has a hissy fit about the budget, but uh, feels as though she left with something to report back, which is all she cares about. There's a great scene in the other office where Mick makes a comment about Rose K. Brown, and Charlie and Bill just kind of stare at them with, you know, kind of their mouths open. And they're like... She hates you. They're looking at him like they're talking to a bunch of four-year-olds. Like, she hates you. And he looks back and looks at them like they're four-year-olds and says, you just need to get her to a pub. Uh, I just love that moment with Nick. I, I just think it really diffuses so it much of the that's, that's a very good moment. I mean, she has to melt the ice to me. And I mean, some, there are people out there who do that, you know. Did she not recognize him? Oh, she, that's right. She didn't, yeah, she didn't recognize him. She, um, I, I, you get the sense that Mick was like the like the kid with the glasses held geeky. together by you know by the masking tape, the real geeky kid. And now he's a dragon yeah, rider. He's obviously tanned, very attractive, and very muscular. And and Rose K. Brown, you know, she she almost dropped her clipboard. And for Rose to drop her clipboard, that's a pretty amazing feat. Well, because it's shoved into her little pocket protector thing there, so it's it's it, you know it's it's difficult to to drop that. I just like how they write these characters who are not canon, and you actually feel for them. You know, you become you really like that. Yes, Rose is kind of a stickler, and she's not necessarily anybody's favorite character, but you love her purpose. You love what she's fighting so diligently for, and like you know where she's coming from. You want you want to root for her, and you just want to you want make to also get her out of her stupor a little bit too. Yeah. 
Bill and Sirius head over to the Leaky Cauldron, and they're going to have a drink, because that is what you do after you have a test day. And the first thing you see here is that Tom, the bartender, is afraid of Sirius. Yeah. I think one of the things that I don't like about this particular scene is because most bartenders I know, especially that ones that work in little hole-in-the-wall joints, they don't scare easy. The way I see it is that I don't think Tom would be that afraid of him. Not, I mean, yes, there would be a bit of trepidation, but I don't think it would be as pronounced as it is in this story. I mean, when he drops the glass, Casirius right. raises his voice slightly. Yeah, they write Tom a little bit, uh, a little bit weakly there. Um, I know what they were He's trying to do. Paranoid. <laughs> they were trying to draw the contrast between, I think, uh, Remus's fear at the beginning of the chapter that that someone would be afraid of him, and then actually show us that someone is afraid of Sirius. Yeah, it was a little heavy-handed, especially with him dropping the glass. I'll give you that. But I think and it's important to show how you know people were scared of Sirius to see to show how difficult it is for Sirius. We just need to reemphasize that it's hard for Sirius. Yeah, and I thought that I, that is a good point, though. Yeah, I think one of the things the scene does, too, is it, it just shows the the restraint of Bill Weasley, which seems a little odd. I mean, the thing about the Weasleys, when they're written in fanfics especially, is that they're so irrational when it comes to family. They go above and beyond. They, they you, you can't reason with these people. You can't, you know, have a calm you know, explanation with them because they have to jump off the handle. I think when Bill realizes that his little sister, who I believe is about five or six years old, you know, is making Wolfsbane Potion... He doesn't run and report to Molly. He doesn't overreact and charge over to Lupin Lodge. He lets Sirius handle it. And I think that's that's new for Bill. That's new for Weasley not to jump off the handle. So I think I can kind of see what you're saying. I, I, I found that a little, you know, out there. I never saw Bill as an adult. I mean, I knew that he was grown up, but I always saw him as like the rebellious college type age. I don't, and, He's and the then, frat boy of the family. Yeah, like the long hair and leather jacket type, type yeah. you know, person. And in this, I see him as a miniature Arthur. Really? You know, but maybe he has a little, he's not quite as balding, you know, <laughs> in, in a metaphorically speaking. But he's very he's not, he's not metaphorically balding. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, I, that is so going on my Facebook. Oh, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> But you know what I mean? Yeah. He seems I, I know so exactly older. what you mean. Okay, good. We couldn't have put it that way ourselves if we tried, but I think we know exactly what you mean. <laughs> well, I want to say that Max mentioned um, in the forums, he says he really felt for Sirius here when Sirius laughs and Bill goes, it's the sort of laugh Bill imagined as a child when people told stories of Sirius Black standing in the middle of the street surrounded by dead moguls laughing uh, maniacally, you know, and he shivers. And Matt goes, he, he actually says, I really, feel, I really feel for Sirius here. I mean, no matter how hard he works, how much good he does, he will always be the convict that so many people imagined. It's sad that people react this way, but if I were telling the truth, odds are I'd probably have a similar reaction. Imagine if the Unabomber was released today and they said he was innocent all along. Then Ted comes to you one day and hands you a package. Yeah, I'd be scared. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good analogy, actually. You say you have you know, a high school English teacher be accused of sexually assaulting a student, and it turns out later that the student made up the story because she got a bad grade in a test. That teacher's life is over. 
I mean, there's so many mm-hmm. things that once you get accused of it, it, it it never goes away. And here's the thing: it's this is Sirius Black. This is Harry's Godfather. This is the guy that we've read about in the books. To you know, Tom the bartender, or to you know, Joe Schmo on the street. They've never met him before. They're just going to go with the impression they've had ingrained in them. They're not going to go with, you know, they're they're not going to give him a clean slate to start with as much as, you know, you would you would hope they would. Although I do agree with what Rena uh, just said. I think that you know Tom the bartender has probably seen some really rough characters in his life, and I don't know. <laughs> well, one one of the things, and this is just, <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think about it this way before. I think that this story does a really good job of highlighting that aspect of Sirius's life, even though like this is completely not canon because obviously Sirius is not alive this far in the story in canon, but he is portrayed in a lot of fan fiction in a very positive light. And I think it's because there are a lot of fangirls that have crushes on him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so they they don't take into consideration the kind of public issues that Sirius would deal with, with this infamy that he has attached to his name. And I think they do a really good job of highlighting something that a lot of authors don't even really touch on. Because... They are very firmly in the we heart serious category, and they don't want anything bad to happen to him. Well, that's the thing, too, is one of the reasons, you know, we can all sit here and we're going to spend, you know, 15, 16 episodes discussing just after the end and why it's, in my judgment, it's the best fanfic out there. Because it gives these characters the depth that's so easy to gloss over to tell a tell a you know a good story. These aren't cartoon characters. These are real people with real problems. And like we said back in episode one, once you know the fighting is over, once the dust is settled, you're left with just who you are and the mistakes that you've made and the problems you've put on shelves for years until you've you know gotten through the dangerous times. Sirius is an accused murderer. He will always be an accused murderer. It doesn't matter who clears him of that. This is a guy who everyone was taught to fear and to to loathe and who was called a traitor, someone who killed his best friends. And you can't just, you know, walk away from that, flip a switch and say that everything's all right again. I mean, it's the same thing with... with, Well, you could, but you'd be really crazy. Yeah. I mean, mean, and that's... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and, and... even look at what Remus did earlier in this chapter. He is afraid he would be seen as just the wolf, as what children have been taught to fear. And it doesn't happen in his case with his immediate family, but you know what happens in other cases. He, he can't find work anywhere. I mean, he and Sirius are in the same boat. Well, I just think it's really interesting that they had Bill. Bill is the one who, who shivers, you know, because the Weasleys are one of the first people who accepted that Sirius, you know, oh, he's innocent. Well, okay, come home. You know, welcome. Let's go eat lunch. Molly's cooking. Um, And yet at the same time, they still have that memory of how they used to fear him over their heads, you know, that they have to push down. And, And that's, I think, part of what makes the Weasleys so endearing is that they can do that. And uh, But I just thought it was really interesting that they pointed it out that, you know, Bill always imagined Sirius as a child, you know, as this horrible murder killer, and now he's here in a bar having a drink with him, and, you know, it just kind of goes, 
What a world. <laughs> well, well, that's a, th- a really good point to make, too, is everyone thought that. Remus thought that. Uh, his yeah. best friend, well, Remus was really his only friend left at the time, but everyone thought that. You don't get the sense at any point in canon, as far as I'm familiar, that anyone thought that Sirius was innocent or was framed. Everyone. Not that they gave him a chance. Right. Re- Sirius was James Potter's best friend who, out of the blue, betrayed him. So you have to realize then that that implies that everything he ever said, everything he ever did was a lie. I have to ask. I mean, wh- what do y'all think about Remus never going and asking Sirius, why did you do that? I mean, there's just nothing. They were best friends and then nothing. Well, I, I get the impression that. Azkaban is not the kind of place that you go visit ever. So, I mean, it's it, it to me it's it's more like, I mean, there's no mention in canon of anyone ever going to visit Azkaban like on a social call. Well, Even he, the Malfoy? I mean, you couldn't though. He, I'm you know, I think you couldn't yeah, though in this and case. And on top of that, exactly. You know, it could be that because of his werewolf status, they wouldn't let him in because he's a dark yeah. creature, and they were afraid he would, you know, I don't know, go postal and let all the prisoners out. They couldn't let or, anyone in there, though, in Sirius's case, because part of the plot line is Sirius knew that Pettigrew did it. That's the whole point. Sirius knew that Pettigrew was the secret keeper. No one at Dumbledore didn't know that Pettigrew was the secret keeper. Nobody knew that. So Sirius... After the Potters were killed, went after Pettigrew. Pettigrew blew himself up, supposedly, and you know took out all the muggles with him. Sirius went to jail knowing the truth, and one of the reasons he finally broke out of Azkaban was he thought that Harry was in danger. So no one was able to get near Sirius, or he would have told somebody, who maybe he did tell someone and they didn't believe him. But you just get the impression that he's been locked away for all these years and nobody's known this. I think I just would really like to read the the reunion, you know, besides the thing in the the Shrieking Shack, you know, that little reunion, like afterwards where Remus would go, I'm sorry, I didn't believe you, or Sirius would have said, yeah, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know how you would how you would go about that conversation or, you know, and I'm thinking even if one of my friends suddenly killed all my other friends, I would I would want to be angry. I would want to know why they did it. I would want to ask them. I just am wondering if this is going to be a, a deleted scene or something that we perhaps end a fanfic. Hearing. Yeah, or maybe even something in Deathly Hollows. Maybe Hollows. Hollows. Maybe one yeah. scene I didn't get to mention back in the Ministry, and it's for so much of this you know story, it's so in depth, it's so creatively written. Sometimes they put in just the classic Saturday afternoon movies. You know, they're kind of corny, but you just love them anyway. You hear Charlie mentioning his assistant you have bill going after him you know after his little brother's girlfriend and you know charlie fires back about fleur and bill in an effort to keep fleur away from him says we don't need to hire her we'll hire you know the new employee and you know it's fleur and the only way we do (laughs) the only way i can kind of describe it is it's like it's it's like watching a slow train wreck you know what's going to (laughs) happen That's, that's exactly it. You're just looking at it, and it's such a you know, it's such a simple plot line. But you just look at it, and you're like, you know what? We have so much going on in the story that's bad and evil. Fleur is about to arrive on the scene, and Bill is about to make a complete ass out of himself. I just, <laughs> love, I just appreciate that so much. I just wanted to comment on that before we leave this chapter behind. No, I'm glad you did. I love that part. 
especially with the chapter that we're about to go into, because the Wolfsbane Potion, I have to say, is probably, to this point, it's easily one of the most emotionally wretching chapters of the entire story. It's just, from beginning to end... It, it's hard to it's hard to get through. Um, it, you know, chapter seven was very emotional, but this is just all of the characters. You know, in, in a very tense environment. And I remember reading through this the first time I read the story. I had some opinions on where I thought the story was going, and out of respect to the people who are listening to this, reading the story for the first time, I'm not going to share what those are because that will give away, you know, if they happened or not. But I just have to tell you that reading this story, um, reading this chapter for the first time, I was convinced that Remus was about to bite it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wait, I just got the plan. That was such a fabulous choice of words. I apologize to werewolves everywhere for that unfortunate. Ryan. <laughs> Hufflepuff regains the house lead. I was convinced. I was con- no seriously. I was convinced that so- that this was it. That Ginny was so sure this was going to work. There's no way this was going to work. And I was convinced that Remus would die in this chapter, and the rest of the fic would be about you know Ginny coming to grips with what she did and why she did it. And I don't know. That's where I saw this fic going, and it just—it's just such an emotionally powerful, powerful chapter. Um, it starts off uh, from from Sirius's perspective, and I, it, it's very short. It's a few paragraphs, but I think it, it just—it just—it just hits you one after another with just lines that make you go, "Oh!" It just—it's just—it's just. It's just, it's just uh, so powerful. It, he, he describes Remus going through the transformation, and what instantly comes to mind for me is. A child watching their parent, you know, grow older, become elderly, and almost revert back to like a child themselves. They can't bathe themselves. They can't clean themselves. And um, yeah. it's just, it's just such a powerful image uh, in my mind. And I went through that. Uh, my dad passed away a few years ago, and you know, I went with him to you know the hospital when he was uh, getting his chemo. And it just, that's exactly how he sees Remus, and he is so protective of him, and. It just really underscores where he's coming from. In the previous chapter, you see Ginny doing something that she just needs to do. You know how this is draining her. You know how she's driven towards this. You don't know why. And, you know, Sirius barges in and he's snide and he's rude. And, you know, you just want to slap him because, you know, because you're on Ginny's side. You're getting Ginny's perspective. You know how important this is. Now we get Sirius's perspective. How dare this little schoolgirl who is, you know, a baby herself step in in, in, into matters so completely inappropriate for her, how private this is for Remus, and just completely throw that aside. And how dare Remus allow her to do this? And I love the part where Sirius responds to Remus essentially telling him, The wolf is my business. Sirius, as a schoolboy, became an animagus spearheaded the entire project, learned how to do it while James is off with Lily and Peter was off doing whatever it is that Peter did at Hogwarts. 
uh, Sirius was was the one who devoted himself to Remus, and then you just see Remus essentially slap him in the face, and he is so angry. It's like three, four paragraphs, and it, it just, it, it, I think they're just some of the best paragraphs of the story so far. It's just such a powerful scene. I found it interesting that uh, Sirius kept going, this is a private matter, when, I, I don't know if it was that word that threw me off, or... Because I kept thinking to myself, how is it private? Um, and I've come to the conclusion that I think it's because in Sirius's point of view, Remus is it. Remus yeah. is the rest of his family, his friends, his life, and he's just so desperate to cling to it that even Harry doesn't seem... I mean, Harry can't fill the role of James. I mean, Sirius is constantly reminding himself of that, that they're two different people. And... Uh, so I guess I just I just thought it very interesting that he kept calling it a private situation, you know? Well, I think that's exactly right what you said. I think it's he sees himself as the closest family that Remus has. And it almost reminds me, um, I had an aunt who had um, cancer a few years ago. She's a very private person. And she did not want anyone to know that she was sick. She didn't want people to pity her. She didn't want people to in any way change the way they dealt with her. And it was one of those situations where everybody knew she had cancer. I think she knew everyone knew she had cancer, but you never talked about it. white elephant. Yeah you, yeah. you you never talk about that. And it was actually interesting. One day she was over at my house uh, for dinner, and we're sitting at the dining room table, and she took her wig off, and she, you know, matted her hair down and put her wig back on. And I looked over at her, and I'm like, just so you know, if I didn't know you had cancer, that would have scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and... <laughs> It was just one of those things where it's, it was the first time we ever openly discussed it because I think she just figured I knew. And I'm just like, th- thanks for telling me. Right. But p- sometimes people are just like that. And Remus is so reserved that – and I, it was said in earlier chapters. You know, he gets up early. He goes off to, you know, to the apothecary and he's back. And everyone kind of could probably figure it out. But you, you just don't mention it. It's like Renee just said. It's the elephant in the room you don't talk about. And, well, I mean, I think another thing. I had an issue with the whole it's a private thing too for a couple of reasons and I guess the first one is because when I think of the word private I think of a secret yeah and what's happening to him really isn't a secret to anyone that knows him everyone that knows him really which for the purposes of the story is pretty much the characters that we're familiar with with the order and through canon You know, everyone that knows him knows about this. Everyone that knows him knows that he goes through this. So in that aspect, the fact that he transforms cannot be private. I don't think it's so much just, you know... The process of the transformation is private. Yes, I agree with that. Unless unless that he's referring... I just thought of this. Unless he's referring to Padfoot and Mooney. Like they did in previous, like earlier chapter when they talked, they did from Remus's point of view, and he kept saying the wolf missed Padfoot. Like they were partners or something. I mean, do you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? That's a good point. So maybe the, maybe it had something. I didn't to think do about that. it that way. And I, I didn't I, either till just now. I just pulled up uh, part of the chapter. I just did a search on this chapter for the word private. Uh, the only time it appears in this chapter was um, it's later in the chapter when Hermione is talking to uh, Sirius. I believe they're out on the uh, on the enclosed porch of uh, Lupin Lodge, and he makes the comment to her that this is private, and that's when she says, "Well, you know, Sirius, we've seen it before," referring back to um, at the end yeah. of Prisoner of Azkaban, and he makes the comment that you know that's just a 
it's just like the tip of the iceberg what you saw there. And there's just you know the other comment I have jotted down here in my notes is uh, she had never seen him shake and stumble like a toddler getting his legs something terribly painful to watch in a fully grown man. Um, I get the sense that what what you were just saying, Rena, it's almost the process of it. It, it. It's it's a part of his life that he is deeply ashamed of that you know, haunts the man so much that, you know, just really gets in there and messes with his perception of who he is and what he's capable of. And it's private to Remus. Remus is a really reserved guy. He wants to be seen as Remus, not the wolf. He becomes once a month. And I think that every day for a week, you know, he'll drink the potion. He'll go off to the apothecary. He'll be back and he'll be Remus. Now it's, you know, a topic for quote unquote family debate. I think Sirius finds that offensive, number one, and he finds it offensive, number two, just coming from Ginny, who has no place in this argument. Well, and I think that's what angered him so much when she, you know, she she goes, and you have, when you've seen him as a full werewolf, I think, because he's actually been there for the post-transformation, you yeah. know, he's been there to see him, you know, scratched up in this horrible, what he did to himself and his self-loathing, so maybe that's what he's referring to. Yeah. Well, but I also understand Jenny's anger at this point because, quite frankly, I mean, according to this, though Sirius has offered to be there during the transformation, he's always been busy. So well, he's been in jail. Well, he's I meant since he got out of jail. Oh, okay. I meant, Sorry. I meant <laughs> with the we, child. We're so hard in these characters. The 15-year-olds who save the world aren't good daters. Sirius is in jail, and he missed his dentist appointment. I mean, like, come on. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, Sirius comes in, like, he's just gone out of jail, and suddenly he's just like, yeah, I've been here the whole time. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, I mean, then, then that's why... I mean, I understand Jenny's anger because for all we know, because it doesn't specify in this story, you know, Sirius has not been there for a transformation with Remus since they were in Hogwarts. Well, he's been out for four years, does it say? He's been out for for four years. He's been out since Prisoner of Azkaban. This is year eight. He's been the head of the Order of the Phoenix for a while. Does it actually state at any point? I can't recall. You know, they must have been doing, you know, order business for a while. Does it state that he hasn't been... Well, they been talk there? about Snape. Snape did his uh, wolf pain until he died. All right. I can't remember and, if it said... But it, it, there's a reference in some in somewhere, and I believe it was in the last chapter, of, you know, Remus mentioning that Padfoot hasn't been there yeah. during the yeah. transformation. Okay, that, yeah, that's And right. so... I mean, and like I said, I'm, I'm basing this on, I, I really feel like Arabella and Zinnia do a really good job of giving us all the information we need to know. And if yeah. if it's not in the story, I think it's a safe bet to make the assumption that it's not happening. I just think it's very interesting that you said you felt for Ginny in this chapter. Because I think when I read it, I thought she was a bit of a of a child. I thought she acted like a child in this chapter. I just wanted well, to slap some respect into her. I don't know. Well, I think, you know, I think part of the thing that I really identify with Jenny about this chapter is you can see from the from the moment that she starts talking to Remus about this in the chapter before to, till now when she's actually going through with this, her desire to do this, her need to do this is not something that she's just making up. This is not, a, oh, I'd like a project, I'm bored, I need something to do. This is a compulsion for her. 
She doesn't know why she needs to do it, but she needs to do it. And it's not letting her rest if she's not actively participating in this process. And I think that, you know, when we get to see it from Jenny's point of view, that is the part that's serious and, and anyone, no one can see that. No one can really see how much of a compulsion this is for her. And when people have that kind of compulsive behavior, you know, they know they're being irrational. They know that they're being just bizarre, but they cannot help it. And that is why I really identify with her in this chapter is because no one seems to understand that if she stopped doing this, she would make herself sick. Well, Harry and understands she's that. she's only doing this. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, Harry understands it to the extent that he can. You know what I'm saying? Well, Nobody she's told really him. Understand. She's told him. I mean, here's... Right. It seems like these characters communicate so poorly in this chapter, and that's part of the problem. There's a reference to, at the end of uh, Sirius' little segment here. He makes references to she has no regard you know, for, for, for his condition, for his health. She has no compassion that she may kill him. Just very, very you know, terrible view of Ginny because he's just so angry at her. And then jump to Ginny's perspective. Her first thought is, I haven't killed him yet, as she's making the potion. And while she is obviously very calm making it, she's a wreck on the inside. She is petrified that she could hurt Sirius. And she's angry as at... As she should be. As she should be. But the thing is, is that she she has that compassion in her, and she is so nervous that something could go wrong and, and I think you're right Jen she is you know very childlike in these chapters but she's doing the best that she can but the problem is is that Sirius is so angry at Jenny he won't acknowledge the fact that maybe she's not you know some stuck up snobby child who's having a temper tantrum and on her end she has to recognize how much Sirius cares for Remus and she's essentially flaunting slapping him in the face saying well Remus gave us permission so I don't need to talk to you about this that's and how I felt both of these characters that's- just they're, not, they're, they're yelling at each other and they're not talking to each other and oddly enough the only character in this chapter who is reasonable is the one about to become a werewolf it's Remus he's the only one who seems to well, be I don't see him as reasonable I saw him as somewhat curiously selfish I think is the correct word that I want to use I don't I don't I don't really see him as like doing the, the good teacher thing. I see him as seeing uh obviously she's got some gift of some sort and yeah he's gonna take a chance with it. But I thought I really thought that he treated Sirius a little less than he should have. I think he was a little cruel. Um and, and, and a little bit selfish, you know, because yeah, it's his life and yeah, he hasn't made decisions in a long time. But he also hasn't had Sirius in his life for a long time. And Sirius is actually in his life now. You know, and I think it's just a little bit... He's just a little uncaring, I felt, in this scene. I think it's a tough one, though, because if you look at it, you have... Because they've been to, they have been in each other's lives for the last four years. Yeah. Maybe not to the extent as they were pre-Azkaban, but they have been there with each other for the past four years. And, I mean... I, I really felt like Sirius was overstepping a lot of his boundaries here because really? he is still, you know, I get the feeling like Sirius has not grown past that whole moody teenager thing. He is very self-centered in this chapter, and he is not worried about what's going to happen to, say, for example, Harry if something happens to Remus. He doesn't really consider what would happen to anyone else if something happened to Remus. He's only worried about what would happen to himself. And, I mean, and that's 
fairly characteristic of someone who experienced some kind of great trauma at a certain age. They just stop progressing beyond that point. Add that to the fact that he was in Azkaban for the next 13 years, and, you know, he's going to have some stunted emotional development and add to the fact that in that blamed, area. And add to the fact that he blames himself for a lot of this. There's a reference in the chapter. He blames himself for giving in and letting Pettigrew be the secret keeper because, in his mind, if he was the secret keeper, the fathers would be alive, Harry would have his parents, and Remus you know, would not be in the situation now where Ginny's at the house with, you know, the, the boy that she's in love with because he'd be off at his own house and Ginny wouldn't be here to be putting Remus in this position. I mean, that's like, that's, you know, really going back in time and showing how you're responsible for a lot of chaos. I mean, yeah, that's how this chapter starts, actually, him thinking those thoughts and, and the, carrying the, the guilt around on his shoulders. I mean, and the weight of it. If you look at it this way, if Lily Potter hadn't sacrificed herself, Voldemort never would have gone the first time. I mean, you can make the argument that Lily's sacrifice and James's sacrifice, you know, saved the Wizarding World for another, you know, 13, 14 years. I mean, it's impossible to look back and say, if I had done X, you know, everything would have been fine. But that's, it's like Rena just said, Sirius is just so stunted that he just, he makes a decision in his head and he goes off with it. And the hell with Harry, the hell with anyone else. This is what he has to do, and he's going to do whatever he has to. I mean, I think when when Sirius looks at Harry, I think it's really hard for him. I think that Sirius is acting this way because Sirius is being selfish, that he's going to be alone again. Yes, I agree that he's stunted, you know, at 24 or whatever, you know, age 21. Um, I think he didn't have, you know, life, life to mature him um but at the same time he's had 12 years of if i had not changed secret keeper none of this would have happened yeah. lillian james would still be alive harry wouldn't be screwed up i wouldn't uh be in this situation uh jenny wouldn't be in this situation I'll, nobody not nothing would be like it is right now if i hadn't screwed up and i think he goes through everyday thinking that and and it just kills him yeah, I just wanted to say, too, just on what I just said a moment ago, um, just to clarify my remark, I mean, you could make the argument that Lily and James saved the world through their sacrifice, but that means nothing to the people who knew them and missed them. I mean, you could make the argument that so much that happens in our history, you know, if 50 people, you know, die in a building fire, will they reform the fire code and possibly save, you know, a thousand people the next week? Maybe, but that doesn't mean that, you know, it was worth it. You still miss your friends. That's all that matters to you. You don't look at it, you know, logically through, you know, the guise of time. And as far as Sirius is concerned, he's responsible on some level for James and Lily's deaths, for Harry's predicament, like you just said. And that's all he sees. And there's a line in there. He witnessed the last of Lily, the last of James, the last of Peter. And Sirius doesn't want to see the last. I'm sorry. And Remus is all that's left. And he, he... is going to do whatever is necessary to protect him and how dare this little schoolgirl come in completely pompous, flaunt, you know, herself into his business, you know, get into his business, flaunt his condition and risk his life and how dare Remus allow it. I think that you were right in what you were saying. I just had to think it through a little bit better. That serious is being selfish about serious. You know, because after, if you read the chapter, you honestly feel that Sirius is being uh, concerned for Remus, and yes, he is, but it really is about Sirius. Yeah. Okay. Good job. Well done. Uh, <laughs> well, I think I, I've always been a big fan of 
of of Jenny in these stories, even from way back in Chamber of Secrets when we just first found her. And, you know, and I think that one thing that Sirius and Jenny are really just missing the point on is the fact that, you know, they have the same guilt. They've carried that same guilt. Above anyone else, Jenny could understand what he feels when it comes to that guilt because it was through her that the basilisk was released in, into the school. Everything that went wrong in her first year was her fault. And she had that guilt, and it's that same thing that Sirius felt. You know, if I hadn't have done this, then none of this would have happened. And she's felt that same thing. And I think that that's something that they could really bond over, but they won't talk about that. Right. They don't talk, and they they completely enrage the other, and they just force themselves apart, and they and they deepen that wedge. You know, if Sirius stopped for a moment and looked it's- at... Yeah, if Sirius stopped for a moment and looked at Ginny and saw, this is not someone who's out to kill my best friend, and if Ginny sat and looked at Sirius and said, you know, this is someone who's just looking out for his buddy, they could just bridge so much of this, but that's not who they are. They're, you know, hands on the hips holding their turf. And well, It's that old adage about how the people, you, the only reason that you really hate someone is because you're so much alike, and that when you interact with them, you see parts of yourself that you don't like. Yeah. yeah. You know what really kills me? It's something that I just thought of when uh, Renner was speaking. When you read the Harry Potter novels, you have Harry, who is so full of guilt and just holds on to that guilt and won't let people near him. And, you know, it's the classic struggle where Hermione and Ron and then later Ginny have to kind of break through that, you know, shield around him to, you know, pull him out and, and to be his friend and to to watch over him. When you look, one of the strengths of After the End is it shows that. When all of these characters are put into these situations, when Hermione loses her parents, when you know Sirius is you know persecuted for what he was accused of, when Remus is persecuted for being a werewolf, when you just you know go down the line, when Malfoy lost his parents, all of these characters have literally been put through the blender by Arabella and Xenia. They're all like Harry now. They all have guilt. They all blame themselves for things. They all, you know, refuse to just look at what they're doing and, you know, deal with that. I think the one who comes closest to dealing with it is Remus because at least he acknowledges he's the wolf. The problem is he doesn't acknowledge the fact that he can be better than the wolf. He kind of acknowledges he has a problem but then just kind of accepts it. I was going to say, well, his, his, his circumstance is different because he didn't do anything to cause that. I mean, that's a self-problem. That's not anything that he could have done differently. He's the only one that didn't screw up somewhere in a, in a way of thinking. He didn't go after Harry. He blames himself for being silent. He blames himself for not getting Harry out of the Dursleys. He needs to do something now. He needs to feel alive again. Well, he should. I'm angry at Remus's character for this. Like, canon Remus? Yeah. I don't understand it. I could go on all day with a rant about Renner it. and I were actually talking about that the other day. What could he have done? Dumbledore has taken the baby to his relatives, who Remus probably didn't like, but may not be that familiar with. He can't raise Harry by himself. What's he do during the times he's a werewolf? I mean... Well, it's also possible that Remus understood the blood magic that was involved. That Lily sacrificed made it so that Petunia's house was the safest place for Harry to be. Like it or not, I mean, that's something that no matter how good your intentions are, you're never going to be able to protect him as well as that magic. 
Well, I think it just was a little bit more selfish. I think Remus lost his entire family in one night, and he couldn't get himself back up from it. And a part of me understands that and can sympathize with that, but the other part thinks like parents, um, where one of the spouses dies and you've got kids, well, that other spouse has to work through, the, through their grief, yes, but they've also got to be there for the kids. And I think I felt that, yes, Remus lost his family, but he was the only one left for Harry and that he should have stepped up and, and been there. I don't know. Does that seem harsh? I think he thinks he should have done that now. I don't know if he should have done that then. I think that one of the things that Remus actually reminds me of is it, it, it's a terrible television show, and I apologize for even mentioning it, but for those of you who have ever, who have ever watched uh, the wondrous series that was Star Trek Voyager, uh, there was an episode uh, terribly fit into a plot arc that was awful, but there was an episode where one of the characters... Um, kept doing very dangerous things. They kept um, mountain climbing on the holodeck without the safeties on. They kept, uh, you know, doing all of this very dangerous behavior because they found out that all of their friends had died. All of their friends were freedom fighters and they had been killed by an impressive uh, race and they felt numb inside. They were the last one left and they just needed to feel alive. And it just reminds me of, it just, you know, strikes me that Remus is doing almost the same thing. He needs to take this dangerous potion. He needs to give Ginny a chance. He just needs to, on some level, number one, make up for past mistakes. Number two, he needs to feel alive. Again, it's, it's yeah. reaction to trauma. You see that it's not an uncommon reaction that people have. Something bad happens, so they want to they want to feel alive again. I mean, there's a an, an odd little phenomenon that's not really talked about, and that's um, grief babies. It's not altogether uncommon for there to be a birth in a family about nine or ten months following a death. Following a death. Because people in the family need to feel alive again. These characters are flawed, and they're reacting emotionally and not logically. But it's because they're all—they've all been traumatized, and they're just—they're acting in the best way that they can. Well, like I was saying earlier, I, I've always been a fan of Jenny's, and and I really—I have a lot of respect and a lot of empathy for this particular version of Jenny. She doesn't even know why she feels compelled to do this. And she doesn't understand it, and nobody does. But she just knows that she has to do it. And she knows that weird things keep happening around her. But if weird things started happening to Hermione, what would she do? Her first instinct would be to head for the library. And it wouldn't matter what else she was feeling. She would start with the library. Then you've got Jenny, who, even though these weird things are happening to her, she doesn't stop to think, okay, I've got to figure out what this is. She says, no. I've I've got to do this. I've got to keep doing what I'm doing. I can deal with the rest of it later. Yeah. And I think that's a, a testament to her personality that, you know, she doesn't have any idea why she's doing this. And she is afraid. She's scared. She doesn't know if she's pulled it off. But and she, she knows what's at stake. Stop. She knows what's at stake, too. Yeah, she knows this could kill exactly. her. Exactly. She knows how dangerous this is, and she doesn't know why she has to do it, but she knows that she has to do it. 
And I mean, and I love the interaction with Harry because through this whole section, it seems like Harry, you know, Harry and Ron and Hermione are on her side and everyone else is pissed off at her. And so not only is she being serious, struggling to do something that she's never done before. You know, she's got, she's got Harry and Ron and Hermione on her side, but it seems like even Ron to an extent, you know, thinks she's crazy for doing this. He supports her. He thinks she's nuts. Yeah, he, when it comes and down to it, he supports you her. Know, he, yeah. yeah. I mean, you you know that deep down, Hermione has serious doubts that she's going to be able to pull this off, too. So really, the only person who just believes in her 100% in this situation is Harry. Yeah. Which I think is a great, you know, flip around from <laughs> everything else in their relationship. It's a great flipping around from other fanfics, too. Usually she's the one who has faith in him when a lot of other people doubt it, including himself, and now it's the other way around. Exactly. He's the stable one, she's the unstable one, he's there for her. Well, I just love this scene. I love it from the moment that they need the silver ladle, and Ron, although he thinks it's a stupid idea, he goes and spends half his paycheck to get the right one and smashes back to her. I think that's such a brotherly, such a great moment. It's such a great detail. And, you know... It is. It's I, great. I, I think you're crazy. Where do I sign the check? I'm going to do this for you because you're my sister and I love you. And I think maybe you just might know what you're doing, right. although I can't understand it. I was like, I never got the feeling that Hermione was against it. I think she thought, ooh, challenge, you know, and I don't think she actually stopped and considered all the repercussions herself because I think she was wrapped up in yeah. becoming a thinker and all that other stuff. But. And I got the impression, too, that she had no idea why Ginny was doing this, which is a little odd. You think you'd ask that, but I think Rin is absolutely correct. If she knew that something was happening with Ginny, she would be so concerned and she would have every book in the house out yeah. trying to figure it out that she just must think Ginny's you know, doing a science experiment. She mustn't know why Ginny is so motivated that she just knows that Ginny is. Well, she even boils mm-hmm. the brain for her. Yeah. Because Ginny didn't know how. Yeah. I love the moment. I just want to make sure we point it out. I love the moment where Ginny just breaks down and she starts sobbing because there's a scene where Ginny is joking around and flirting with Harry. And, of course, Sirius comes to the door and sees Ginny joking around and assumes that she is, as always, you know, completely, you know, being jovial when Remus's life is at stake. And it's one of those moments where you just... It's like the scene in the movie when you know the character's doing something that looks bad but isn't, and the other person walks in and overreacts, and the person doesn't defend themselves. It's the point where you want to, like, jump on the screen and slam their heads together. Um, it, it was one of those moments, and, um, you know, you have... You know, Jenny starts crying because... She knows that people don't believe in her, and this is the head of the Order of the Phoenix, and he, you know, wants to throttle her, and he's and she's so upset over it. Harry walks over and offers her a she handkerchief. Scared. Yeah, he brings her a handkerchief that he was going to use for his bloody ankle. Like it could be really chivalrous. <laughs> it could be this romantic, gentlemanly scene, but that's not Harry. You know, Harry's got to explain that it was for his bloody ankle, and it kind of ruins the effect, but. It also makes you go, well, okay, it's Harry. It's not a chivalrous guy. I love how he throws in there at the end, too. He throws in, but don't worry, I didn't use it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I would think if he had a bloody ankle, you'd be able to tell. (laughs) He's so dense, but we love him. Well, I mean, I guess they have, like, those Scorgio spells or something. And then we move from there to the moment where Jenny goes back to her room and she's completed the potion and Remus 
you know, drank the potion, he left, she, you know, cleaned up after herself, it's over, it's out of her hands, she goes back in her room, and she kind of falls against the door, and all she feels is Hermione rushing over and holding her, and it, it's just, you know, it, I just thought that was a really powerful moment, and just really speaks yeah. volumes about that friendship she between... She just needed a hug. She needed yeah. a hug. This is something that I really don't understand. So. It happens in so many fanfics, and, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't ever remember anything stating anywhere in canon that Hermione and Ginny just magically became BFF. I mean, that is something I have never understood about fan fiction. I think People make yeah. Hermione and Ginny into this, oh my gosh, we're going to have girl time, la 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 la. And that is something I've never understood. Because personally, from these two characters' personalities, I don't think they would get along I think Hermione would be very disapproving of Ginny because she's too impulsive, and I think that Ginny would get annoyed very, very quickly by Hermione's, you know, her mannerisms and and the things that she does. I mean, I understand that people have to take artistic license and that these two characters are often thrown together at the same place and at the same time, and I'm not saying that they would hate each other's guts, but I just have never understood why so many authors feel compelled to make them best friends. Well, obviously, let's separate two things here. Number one is obviously based on just the type of story Arabella and Xenia are writing. There's this four-year gap where, for all you know, they could have become you know good friends in that time, so it's not like you know we're picking up you know right after Canon left off and suddenly they're friends. Um, just looking at the two characters, I've always seen Ginny as a more reasonable, more in touch version of Ron. I, I'm thinking of the scene in Order of the Phoenix when Harry is about to, you know, bust away and, and head back to Privet Drive and, and leave the Weasleys behind because he's afraid that he's possessed by Voldemort. And you have, you know, Ginny knocking them up the back of the head saying, I've been possessed by Voldemort. You want to talk to me about it? And it's just, she seems like she can really cut through the BS and she's much more uh, focused than Ron is. And. I think that there are parts to her personality that Hermione could really approve of, especially considering the fact that she's had to be a very reserved person for a lot of her life, especially after everything that happened in the Chamber of Secrets. I'm sure, you know, for time she became, you know, very inverted, especially, you know, being the only girl in, you know, a house of, you know, seven children. I'm sure she has, you know, those parts to her personality that Hermione being the bookworm probably has as well. Although I will take what you just said. I think that there is... The, the, the possibility for moments when Hermione is at her motherly moments and when Hermione is at her very disapproving moments with Ginny's temper, yeah, you could definitely see, you know, atomic explosions here. Well, I I actually think that I agree more with Rena's point here. Uh, maybe it's from a different, from a girl's standpoint, I don't know, but uh, I know that I think that I think it could go both ways too. I think they could hate each other, um, which is very, you know, common because I don't think Ron would want her around as much with his friends. I think that would cause some animosity. But I also think, and I think that Ginny and Ron are very, very similar. Um, and I think, I think they could be friends because, um, because. Everyone wants to help Harry in every way possible. And I think Hermione is mature enough to see that Ginny loves him. And then I think that Hermione would be easier to accept 
Jenny, yeah, maybe they may not be the bestest of friends, but also we have to remember that Hermione doesn't really have any girlfriends. That's what I was thinking. Hermione that, probably wants a girlfriend. Right, and, and, and Jenny just is there, and, and you know, you, you become friends with who you're put in a situation with. I mean, I mean, yes, it's true that there has been this four-year gap, and we don't know what has happened in this universe, but it's just that is something that has always jumped out about about fanfic authors in general. And, I mean, I'm probably going to get hate mail from this so bad, but I am not a fan of the Ron Hermione pairing. I I know. You freaking <laughs> fix about Ron Hermione. Because they're easy to write. I'm, I was going to say, I'm reading I, one of them now. I will maintain till the end that that is the easiest pairing to write because it is very stereotypical. It's yeah. very obvious. That's fair. And I'm not a fan of that pairing. I mean, I could see them like hooking up or something, but so many people have them married off somewhere down the line. I don't think that would happen. I hate their marriage. Being thing. realistic, I think they'd kill each other before they ended up marrying each well, other. you think of Lavender Brown. But. Not the the character, the author. Juan, <laughs> Juan. Yeah. <laughs> I, um... I mean, I, I've read her work, and she she really writes. She's very talented, but but still, I mean, for me, it's it's difficult. I mean, and also, there's a difference between the canon characters and fanfic characters. True. And I mean, and and I have a problem in canon with that pairing, and so that is probably part of the reason why I have a difficulty believing that Hermione and Ginny would ever just be BFF because. I think they would drive each other crazy. And BFF, BFF, and just BFF stands for best friends forever. Oh, hello. Excuse (laughs) me. Were you in seventh grade? Were you fifteen? Yeah. I guarantee I never said BFF in seventh grade. All right. um, Well, I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to tell you what. Let's get some expert testimony in here. Zenia is listening right now. Zenia, Colin, give us your thoughts on Hermione and Ginny's friendship, please. And we'll play them in the episode. I thought, I thought you were going to ask them, have y'all ever used BFF? And, and yes, Zenia, if you've ever used BFF, or if anyone listening to this has ever used BFF or would like to talk about your favorite acronyms, please email staff at Weekly. Dot com and we will or send us your voicemails through Gizmo Project and we'll put you on the show. We'll have an entire acronym segment, I promise. Remus is just chilling. Everyone's chilling. They're getting ready for the big event tonight. And then all of a sudden Sirius comes in and hands over this contract. Oh, my heart breaks. That basically says, I, Remus Woodman, am a moron and I am absolving Jenny Weasley of anything that she may or may not have done to this potion. And if I kill anyone, it's my fault, not hers. If I kill myself, it's my fault, not hers. Love, Remus. <laughs> so then, Jenny basically, you know, I mean, and this is where we kind of get to the root of the problem. Sirius is directing a lot of his anger at Jenny. He is lashing out at Jenny, but he is angry with Remus. Yes. Yes. And, and that is something that I think he, I mean, again, it's the whole idea of him being stunted at you know, however old he was when his when everything went, you know, craptacular for him. Craptacular. <laughs> so we have our own version he, uh, of Sue on the show. You ever notice that? Craptacular. I love it. 
fun. So. Fabulous. I'm going to use that. <laughs> but, you know, he's stuck in that mindset of, you know, a late teen, you know, of a teenager. Mm-hmm. You know, if he's he's mad and he doesn't want to talk about it, and so he just gets mad at the easiest target, which in this case happens to be Jenny because she's the most visible and she's the one that's doing something and he's really angry with Remus and this contract is very a very passive aggressive way of informing everyone that he is really hacked off and you know what it is too with so much in this story there's a little bit of truth in there that makes it easier to swallow Sirius is responsible for Ginny by having Remus sign the contract he is protecting Ginny from legal prosecution. It's what the Weasleys would want, and it's interesting because when Harry is walking back to the lodge with Ron, he tells Ron about the contract. Ron is glad Sirius did it. Mm-hmm. I doubt Sirius's motives, although I do suspect that. It was Bill's that, idea. It was Bill's. Well, it wasn't Bill's idea. He told Bill he would take care of it. He Sirius is doing what he responsibly must do as Ginny's guardian. And on some level, he knows that, and he's doing it for the right reason. Although, like Rena said, I think there's a big chunk there that's passive-aggressive. It's not all passive-aggressive, well, but there's a little bit I, of of reasonable precautions in there. Him doing it was very responsible, but the way he presented it was extremely aggressive. Oh, absolutely. And harsh. Absolutely. I think that's what's so horrible. Like, if he had calmly did it... And said, you know, I'm doing this for your best interest. But he did it. He, like, slams it down and said, stop it before you die. Cut top of way. Yeah. Yeah. Neener, neener, neener. Loving I'm mad. Seriously, that's what You all is. know that I'm mad. Deal with it. Yeah. Which is true. I mean, so many of these characters just... They, the, the way they handle each other is just, you know, absolutely ridiculous. And there, there's just so much they could do to just clear up all these problems. But then again, this, if, we, if they did that, this fic would be six chapters long. Well, and I will say this too. I, I I do, I do respect the fact that Jenny wants to take the consequences herself. She is willing to live with them, and I think that Sirius does not give her one ounce of credit for that. But Jenny at least does do the right thing there. I, I agree. Right. Well, she doesn't screw up. I mean, she didn't actually want to do the right thing. Remus found it. She just didn't burn it, which I don't think is exactly accepting it. But She didn't want him to sign it. Yeah. Because by signing it, it would absolve her of any responsibility and put anything that happened squarely on Remus's shoulders. She wanted the you responsibility. Know, she's not, she is willing to stand up and, and take the consequences if something happens because she, because like I said, you know, this is a manic thing. This is a compulsion. She doesn't know why she's doing this and she knows how dangerous it is. And she did it anyway. Yeah, and and she wants people to know that she acknowledges that. So then we move into the situation where we are getting ready. It's almost it's almost sunset. We are getting ready for the full moon, and everyone's making their final preparations, I should say. And Sirius is telling them to put unbreakable charms on all the windows and to lock the door and to keep themselves protected because he is. Sirius is just convinced that something's going to go god-awful wrong, and at worst, Remus is going to, you know, to quote Ryan, bite it, and at best, she's going to turn into the wolf and go, you know, bat crap crazy on everyone, so... 
know? <laughs> We're going to get snarky so, after 10.30, everybody. But, okay, I'm going to start writing all these down. <sighs> there, it's on the po- I'll send you the original version of the podcast. Well, here's one. So, so yeah. you know, re- so Sirius does not have a high opinion of this little experiment. And Jenny is upset about this, you know. What she wants is is to be there, to see it, to experience it, and it's and part of that is because she knows what's at stake, and she wants to see it firsthand. And Sirius is trying to keep the kids from seeing what's going to happen, and he's also trying to protect Remus from attacking someone in case of you know the best or the worst happens. I love the moment where uh, I'm sorry, I just want to say I love the moment where Jenny's down there and uh, Remus is about to be put into the shed, and even with. You know, all the fear he must be feeling. We don't get this impression of the scene, but he must be terrified going in there. And there's the scene where um, Ginny, you know, walks over and he, you know, shakes her hand and she just jumps on him and gives him the biggest hug in the world. And, um, you know, he gets put into the, he gets put into the shed and you can just feel the, the animosity, you know, pouring out of Sirius and Ginny's standing there. Uh, it describes her holding herself like she's shivering, you know, on this summer day. And um, you just feel so bad for Ginny going into this. She She's literally holding his life, you know, in her hands, and she's already done what she will, and you're just waiting to see what happens. At one point, Sirius makes the comment that he will open the door and go in and take care of Remus if the worst happens, and, and Remus won't hear of it, and he whispers something to Sirius, and eventually Harry asks Sirius, what did he say? And he says he did not want to be let loose because there are children nearby and he would not let another yeah. child go through what he did. And he sees himself almost like a weapon. You just have to... The poor guy's being you know chained up inside of a shed in his backyard and everyone he knows is watching him and he could die and he could become this horrible creature again. And he will become this horrible creature again, but you know he could be dangerous as well. And it's just such a... And you're you're sealing all the windows, the smallest windows in the house that you know are on the second floor practically, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's just you're and you're sealing yourself away from Remus because of what could happen to him because of Ginny, and it's just each of these characters is just so conflicted, and they're all at each other. And I just what I love about this scene is that this is the first moment I think in the entire series of Harry Potter that Harry decides he wants to talk to someone about his feelings. <laughs> Like, right then. I do. I want to talk about Harry right now. Go for it. What? Why does Harry... Okay, I, I just thought it really odd that Harry suddenly wanted to talk serious about his feelings. He marches out there, and he wants to stay. Harry's just like, go inside. We'll talk about this later, Harry. And Harry's just like, no. Like, I thought maybe he's trying to fill in for James. I, I, I couldn't really figure it out. I took it he was defending like Jenny. Ginny's different. Ginny's new. Everything happening with Ginny is hitting him in a way it never hit him before. And Sirius has been so disrespectful to Ginny in his eyes that Ginny is worth him making that leap. And Ginny's worth him taking on his godfather when his godfather's in this state. It's because of Ginny. I I think that's a very good analogy. This is... That is a <laughs> it's the guy climbing up on top of the water tower with a bucket of paint to defend his lady's honor. <laughs> I have never tried that. <laughs> on top of a bucket of paint? With a bucket of paint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm like, what? 
Shed's picturing a man standing in a bucket right now. Well, I was like, why? You, you know, if this was medieval times, he would have, or if this was, you know, not the medieval period, he would have walked up to Sirius and slapped him in the face with a chainmail glove. I mean, that's that's the idea here. He's he's going out to defend Jenny, and you couldn't pick a worse time belated. if he tried. Yes. You know, but 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 the intention is is very sweet. We do give him credit for that. It completely makes up for the handkerchief fiasco of earlier that evening. You know, Sirius is put in the shed. Everyone goes in the house. You know, a lot of animosity. And let's talk about what happens. You know, Sirius charges out of the house. Sirius becomes Padfoot. He's you know running around as Padfoot running around the shed, and you hear Remus. You know as the wolf, you know, murmuring, making noises from the shed, and Sirius yeah. bounds back into the house at Ginny, and he becomes, you know, the man again, and Harry almost steps between them to defend Ginny, and Sirius grabs Ginny and holds her and hugs her and says, you did it. You did it. And I, I felt like a moron thinking that, you know, Remus would die, but... Can I just say that I thought it's so romantic that Harry steps in front of her and is is trying to protect her from Sirius's wrath, and like Sirius just like reaches around and like pulls. I thought, oh, I loved it. And you wonder, it's not from Sirius's perspective. You wonder how much of an ass he felt like then. I don't think he did at all. I think he was just so relieved and happy. I don't think he even felt like an ass until later. Do you think he even felt, you know, happy? do you think he even felt grateful to Ginny, or do you just think he was so happy that it worked, he, you know, he would be hugging the mailman at that point? I mean... Well, they make a reference to him thanking Ginny later, and then he wants, like, apologizing to Ginny. I don't think we actually see the apology, because he just tells Ron, I feel like I need to apologize to you, too. Okay, that's right. Um, that, isn't that right? No, I And I, I think right. him and Ginny... Must have had a scene that we don't see, but at this moment, I don't think he was apologetic. I think he was just so relieved that his friend was not going to kill people or himself. And, and he, so impressed, so amazed. And I think it's well with everything that Rena said before. You know, he's stunted, he's trapped in this mentality where he's going to make these decisions and make these judgments and not move beyond it. You wonder just how you know, you know, he's just hedging his bets that this is going to fail. He never considered the fact that that Ginny would do this. I don't think Remus considered the fact that Ginny could do this. And, you know, all of a sudden he's, you know, he, he's been proven wrong. You wonder, I would really like to have known what Sirius was thinking at that point. And instantly, the minute it works, Ginny collapses. She has been holding herself together on, you know, adrenaline and fear and it worked and she needs to go to bed. But I thought it was so interesting how Ginny, she really, she, uh, collapses on Sirius. Like, she just grows weak. She puts her head on his shoulder for a minute. And then he's gone, but yeah, I thought it, it interesting that she actually lets him have that. Well, it's not... I don't think it was that she let him have that. I think it was that she was literally holding herself up until she knew what happened. And the minute she found out she did it, you know, all of that, you know, stress just left her and she just deflated and she had no energy to move practically. And Harry steps in, he puts yeah, his arm right. he puts his arm around her waist and he helps her up the stairs and he, 
everyone's Ignoring elated. Ron and Hermione. And you're, yeah, Ron who, Hermione what? And you can just, I, I just love the thing too, there's a reference to, you know, Harry thinking, you know, he knows if he had eyes in the back of his head, he knows exactly the expression on his friend's faces right there. And Jamie can make it up the stairs herself, but he's going to take her, and he gets her up the stairs, and you just have to love it. it. I think at the end of every chapter in this fic, one of these characters is putting the other one to bed. Yeah. I just love awkward Harry. I love Harry. He's not the suave gentleman. Like, I love that he blurts out, oh, my gosh, that was incredible. You know, after he's leaving and she's holding her nightgown, he wants to do something for her. He can't. He doesn't know what to do. She's not really explaining it. She's, he, he's so jealous that she just is so natural um, in leading things. And, you know, let's get on, let me get your nightgown. So he, he, she did such a good job putting him to bed he just feels incompetent and awkward he gets you know and she's standing there in the middle of the room with a nightgown she's about to change and and she's just laughs she's laughs she's amused by him yeah you know and i think she really is flattered but she's too tired she can't do it and he like he leaves and then he comes back and he's like oh that was amazing i just want to let you know it's really great and and then they awkwardly look at each other and I love it. Well, you can tell the effect that Harry saying what you did was amazing had on Jenny. I think it just completely rejuvenated her. And then I just love yeah. what happens after that. He goes back downstairs, and you know, Ron and Hermione are obviously have their little looks, and Ron goes to bed, and Harry sits up throughout most of the night with Hermione. Hermione's you know, on the chair with her book, and they wait up to kind of do like a little vigil for Remus. <laughs> and his voice cracks. He's <laughs> forgot about that. <laughs> Harry hit puberty at the end of the chapter uh, 14. <laughs> and Ron, he doesn't, I just love that Ron doesn't say anything. It, it says so much in his facial expressions. He doesn't have to say anything, and yet Harry knows exactly what he's thinking. Oh, yeah. It's great. <laughs> I just love the Ron and Harry moment. Let's move on to uh, chapter 14, uh, which uh, is entitled uh, Plans for Autumn. We start off from Ginny's perspective. Uh, she is, It's a flip of an earlier chapter. Ginny wakes up and realizes that she did it and things are fine and she feels that relief and she goes downstairs and Harry is asleep at the table because he was yeah. waiting up uh, for Remus and Harry's having nightmares. I thought, you know, it was such a reminder. The war is still going on. I love how Harry wakes up, how she gently, wrote, you know, taps his shoulder or something and he fumbles awake his hand is immediately on his wand you know I remember my mother telling me a story about my dad she'd gone to the bathroom when she came back to bed he was in the middle of a nightmare and I remember she told me he grabbed her by the front of the shirt and threw her on the bed and pulled back his fist as if to punch her and she goes oh wake up wake up it's me it's me you know, and, and it, you know, he was dreaming. It just makes me wonder how actually dangerous it is to wake up Harry. When <laughs> you will want to be living in a dorm with him. Every time the alarm closes off, he blows a hole in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. You know, Jenny and Harry are talking, and, and she's explaining how relieved she feels. And, and she says, I don't feel sick for the time in weeks. She doesn't. You know, it's over. She doesn't feel that compulsion anymore. She can relax. And, you know, he says, and Harry says, well, don't get too comfortable. You know, Sirius is going to make you do this next month, and you have to start in two weeks. And she says, no, no way. I'm not doing that again. Are you crazy? I'm sure it was a fluke. And 
and then Remus comes in and he says, I'm pretty sure it's it's not a fluke. And, you know, everything is fine. And, and then Jenny makes Remus a cup of tea and she puts sunseed oil in it. And Yeah, I love that. She, you know, and he says, how did you know to do this? And she says, oh, well, you're, you're supposed to do it. And I, I guess I learned it somewhere. I guess I read it somewhere. And this is the first time that we really get into talking about what is going on with Jenny. It becomes so apparent. Remus is, is for the first time, Remus is saying, okay, I think I know what's going yeah, on, yeah, but, yeah. but I'm, I'm going to hold off on talking about this until I do a little bit more research. Right. And... And then we get the bombshell that Remus wants to teach Jenny for her seventh year. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, and I think that's great. I think it would help him, and I think they could help each other a lot. And I think that's one of the points that they bring up, you know. And she can do the Wolfsbane potion. He trusts her now because she did it right. And he knows she's not going to fail. Because of what's going on with her. And he has a very blind faith in her, and you you know that's somehow built into uh, what he suspects is happening, which we as the reader do not know yet. And I I like what you just said, too. You know, earlier, you know, you got the sense that, you know, he's giving her a peculiar expression. He's, you know, concerned about, you know, is she sick? Is she ill? How will you tell Arthur? And now we've progressed to the point where I think something's up with you. I know what it is, but I'm not quite going to tell you what it is yet. So, you know, please hold. And, um... Yeah. Please hold for further instructions. Absolutely. And, yeah, I just think that's that's absolutely correct. And one thing I just want to talk about, too, is um, I talked about this back in Chapter 12. You have, uh, you know, essentially the Weasley family uh, protectiveness seeming to take a little bit of the back seat in this fic. This isn't really a fic about, quote-unquote, the Weasley family yet. You've had some, you know cuts to Bill a little bit there, but this is primarily based out of the Lupin Lodge at this point. And it's interesting too, because when you hear, you know, one thing that we've talked about before, one thing that Fick does very well is that it makes you feel compassion for the character that you're reading about right now. From the perspective of Ginny, you want her to stay at the Lupin Lodge. She's not a little kid anymore. She doesn't want to go back to the borough and be homeschooled by Molly. She wants to stay around Harry. She wants to stay around Ron. This is where she belongs. This is home to her now. And you almost feel almost like a quasi-animosity towards Molly for potentially wanting to take her away from that. And I could very imagine, you know, easily, you know, the next section of this chapter being from Molly's perspective and how lonely she is. And you feel bad for Molly, you want Ginny to go home. I just think it's great that... But she has Penelope now. I mean, it could be much worse. Yeah. Which is true, too. I just wanted, I just wanted to comment on that, too. Reading this... This section, I felt so happy for Ginny finally being somewhere where she belongs and finally having earned Sirius's respect. And I just, I was like almost angry at the prospect that Molly would come in and try and swoop her out of here. Yes, I agree. So that, okay. I guess, I think if, Pen- if Penelope wasn't there, though, I think it would have been a much more difficult fight. I think Miss. And I'm Molly. I love, I love, love, love that the first thing that Hermione says. When Jenny tells her about it, is you can have all my books. <laughs> I've color coded all of my homework, and I can. <laughs> they're all in order by dates, her notes, and they're binded. Yes, and then Ron is like, "Okay, I asked you for your notes every day last year, and you would not help me, and you're letting her just have them." 
Oh. But he's really happy right. for her anyway. I know. They add that little saying, but really you could tell Ron was happy about the situation. Ron's Whatever. a good guy in these chapters, you know. And he's about I to take. I like Ron. He's about to take a turn for the angry, but he, he, Ron doesn't exactly yeah. get what's going on with Jimmy, but he still spies the label. It, that that one little moment really sums up everything there. Um, and then, of course, yeah. we, one thing I really love is you know you have the owl arrive from Charlie announcing um, the permanent Azkaban patrol would like Harry Potter to you know join up with us and help corral some Dementors for a while, and you almost see. You know, Harry has, we joke in the office I work in, there's usually um, one woman pregnant all the time. So we form, you know, the pregnancy group. And one of us will, you know, get her to the car. One of us will drive. One of us will call, you know, the hospital to say we're on the way. And we have this entire team set up, you know, in the event that someone, you know, gives birth in the middle of a blizzard or something. And you just almost picture that there's, you know, a protect Harry from himself club. And the minute he starts looking at the... Note and starts. You, you see the, the wheels turning in his head that he's about to agree to do this because that's what Harry Potter does. You see everyone sort of jump in, into position. You have Ginny saying, "Don't do it." You have Hermione saying, "Sirius would be upset knowing you're near Dementors." You have Ron pointing out the fact that Harry has not had uh, very good luck with dragons in the past. And one thing that, you know, <laughs> is great is that you know, considering Ron's in the room and Harry's trying out for the for the cannons, <laughs> you have Ginny going, you know, Oliver Wood would kill you if you didn't go on the team. And it just, you just seem see the Harry defense force, you know, jump into action. And within moments, Harry's like, okay, I'll write back. I'll say no. And they just <laughs> deflate it. You can tell these people are getting really good at this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's paid his debt to society. He has no more responsibility to society. I think I think that he has gone above and beyond his call of duty. He has done his bit for king and country, and it is now time for him to retire and have lots of babies with Ginny. I'm sorry, uh, Mac from the forums just inhabited my body and made me say that. Hermione is asking, oh, do you want to stop by the twins' shop? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. Don't you want to go see them? And and you see that she's this neutral expression, and then you find out that they had sprayed her with homework repellent the year before, <laughs> and she couldn't go near her homework for three <laughs> days. And what did it do? It, fl- it flew up. It, it flew away from her when she would get near it. Yes, and you can just imagine from what we know of Canon Hermione how she would have reacted to this. I mean, threat of oh, Voldemort, oh. nothing. She would have been going. There. And what was the thing with the library? If she walked near the library, it, she would be pushed away they with would such a shock. Her. Didn't it like knock her down the stairs or something? Like she couldn't even. And you can just picture her mind, you like building up her strength and charging up the stairs towards the library. It just swats her. Oh, yeah. It's, it is one of my favorite things about this whole story is the homework repellent. I mean, it's just priceless. I date my Max own Hermione. I, I date my own Hermione, and w- when it comes to homework, you know, Danielle would make 25-page, you know, outlines for quizzes that she may not even have. She she went above and beyond, and it, it, the, I can really speak, you know, knowing a Hermione very well that... that what, what an awful thing those Weasleys, you know, did to her. Very, very bad. Very, very, very bad. <laughs> I just watched Chamber of Secrets the other day, sorry. I was going to say, you know, Hermione is now in Wizard, or the Fred and George's shop, and she is 
staying in the doorway <laughs> because She's she doesn't want anything to happen to her. <laughs> she was squinty eyes. And it's more than just the homework repelling, obviously. It's it's a it's a step off of um, what was said the last time we went to the borough. It's that they're the jokesters. They're and one thing about Fred and George you have to love is you know when Harry is thought to be the heir of Slytherin and no one in the school will like him. They mock the fact that he is the heir of Slytherin. They diffuse everything with the jokes and with everything Hermione's going through with her parents, they target her relentlessly. <laughs> and she's an only child. She doesn't know how to deal with that. Yeah. But it does I mean they make the point and I think this is a good point that this is how she knows she's a part of the family now. Yeah. That they're not afraid to include her when they're, you know, participating in the jackassery that they like to do so well. That's how you know the and that's how you know you're on the yeah. good side. That's how you know you they they probably wouldn't pay any attention to you if if they didn't like you. They obviously exactly. care about her a great deal. A tremendous deal. They they won't let her near her homework for three days. <laughs> Did you notice that they actually put uh Weasley Wizarding Weeses and Hogsmeade in this? Did they? Was yeah. it not in Hogsmeade? No, it's actually in, it's in Diagon Alley in the canon. They actually moved it over oh, to Hogsmeade. Right. Well, it's interesting because I said this in the last fic, and I haven't even checked it yet. I don't. Do you remember uh, Weasley Wizarding Weasley's being mentioned in Goblet of the Fire? The name? Uh, uh, yes. Why? Because they were doing the mail order. Remember? Okay. When they were going to the Quidditch World Cup. No, I, I mentioned that last week, and I couldn't remember it in Goblet of Fire, but I assumed it was in there. Okay. I'll find the exact quote and I'll put it in the forum. Okay. Um, okay. So, so you have you know that that just that great scene with you know Hermione and just how she's so afraid to be around um, <laughs> to be around the twins and then uh, you know she and Jenny you know leave and they and they're they're hanging out in Hogsmeade and it defaults back to her becoming the thinker and it's almost time for her to leave and she still hasn't told Ron. Ugh. She's put it off a long time. I think tackling it too long. Sorry, that was my ominous bad things to come music. Okay. Oh my <laughs> god! Oh god! Like a little yeah. bit. Like I think. I mean, I understand her wanting to put it, it it's off. It's the ostrich. It's it's the ostrich theory of living. My dogs do this. If if they are scared they will stick their head under a pillow and that makes everything bad in the world go away if she doesn't talk about it it's not bad yeah and, and, and you see Ginny kind of pull the same thing she pulls on Harry in the can and she kind of you know knocks her on the back of the head and says uh, it, it's time to go talk to my brother yeah it's time well it's past time I mean she, she in less than a week if I were Ron I'd be real hacked off and no one's no one's you know blameless here either. Ron handled the situation completely poorly, and I actually feel in touch with the situation. Uh, Danielle is actually moving in about probably about three weeks. She's moving to New York City for six months, which is about you know a oh three and a God. half hour drive from where I am, and she's going to culinary school, and it's a huge change in her life. And I'm gonna get her back in six months, but yeah, she it's she's leaving and you know it's gonna make things harder for a while but this is something she needs to do so you know i look at that i look at ron the way ron reacts here is ron's a smart guy he's been through a lot he's stood by people through tougher decisions than this and you you know you have hermione go back to the house and ron's of course you know reading his comic book and she sits him down and she tells him i am going to train with the thinker and he does the same old thing again he's 
excited at the prospect that she might not be accepted. He, you know, is evasive about the topic. And for a change, instead of Hermione just trying to, you know, mope around with it or trying to deal with it, Hermione just gets angry. And yeah. A little quickly, I feel. A little bit. I mean, I understand where she's coming from, but I mean, she kind of just sprung it on Ron. He really doesn't get a decision in it. Well, and the thing is, too, is you know Hermione's thought process is if it doesn't work, wait six weeks and then say the exact same thing again and hope for a different result and hope the time somehow changed things. It doesn't. So, you know, you have... You know, her expecting yeah. a completely different Ron. They haven't dealt with this. Ron, you know, is probably thinking, "Oh, this again." I thought we were through with this, or I thought I killed this. And Hermione gets angry, and she throws it in Ron's face. "You're jealous. I never thought you'd be jealous of me. Why can't you be supportive of this?" And then you get a glimpse of Ron's, you know, inner workings on the topic because you really haven't had anything from Ron's perspective on the thinking yet. Ron is a guy who works at a pub. And we talked about this before. It's you know, it's yeah. It, it's you know, it, he's the common man. It's decent work. He's been raised to respect what he does. But you have his best friend, who's the professional Quidditch player. You have his sister, who just made Wolfsbane potion. You know, at seventeen years old. You have his father's the minister of magic. He's doing work that he enjoys. He's doing work that you know is coming to him. He has no earthly idea who he is. And this is the perplexing nature of the character of Ron. Who is he other than Harry Potter's best mate? Ron's having a flashback to his fourth year. Everyone has direction but him. He's Harry Potter's stupid friend, and that's how he feels. Juxtapose this to what happened with Sirius and Ginny back a couple chapters ago. You have a situation where two characters, two people can just sit and talk this out, but they won't because each of them is feeding on what feels good at the moment, and it's completely driving a wedge between these two characters. Mm-hmm. You, you have Ron, who feels extremely insecure, and you have Hermione throwing, you know, her talents at him, you know, as almost like a grenade, because she is feeling so unloved and so unsupported. And you have Hermione screaming, I find it very hard to believe I wouldn't be accepted to the thinking program, or Ron's probably thinking, I would never be accepted to a thinking program. And you know, you have everyone congratulating Ginny on this amazing thing that she did. Ron doesn't even know who he is anymore. And you have this huge blow-up you know, at the house over what was supposed to be Hermione just settling this once and for all about the thinking. Well, Ron didn't care about what he was going to do because whatever he had to do, it was going to involve Hermione and she kind of just ruined that. So now he's even, he's just lost. He doesn't know what to do. Yeah. And it's, it's a situation where, you know, since he found her, and we, and we start, you know, he storms out of the house. He storms through the woods that we discovered were there back in chapter three, and he, you know, he storms away, and he, you know, goes down by the lake, and he has a flashback to the first time that he and Hermione got together, and they're in the common room, and they're playing chess, and they, you know, they're playing footsie with each other, and Hermione's being very forward about he needs to make a move, and finally he just kisses her, and he thinks that. You know, since that moment in fifth year, so much sadness has happened that they've never had the chance to just be themselves and be around each other until right now. And what's the first thing Hermione wants to do? She wants to leave him. 
and in her yeah. and she's being completely reasonable about this. She's only going four months. She'll be back soon. This is for her parents. This is for her. She like Remus just needs to feel alive. She needs to feel like she's doing something, and she feels completely unsupportive. Ron's response to that is, "I don't care what the situation is. I'm being selfish here. This is the first time I've actually had you to myself, and the first thing you want to do is leave." And there's no way that she can explain that away because based on the way he's focusing the question, there is no way she can win that. Right. And they've got themselves into this, into this scenario where there's no way either of them can win. And it's sad. I think that there have been so many things that have come between and around and have happened to these people that, you know, his reaction is not entirely unexpected. But at the same time, you know, this is something that, again, these characters aren't thinking logically. They're thinking emotionally. And this is a, a very classic example of it. You know, he doesn't see it in terms of what this could do, you know, in the long run. He sees it as what it is doing right now. And what it is doing is taking her away. Yeah. And one of the most powerful lines in the entire story is, you see that perfect moment of happiness between Ron and Hermione and everything's fine. And it's like you, you guys, you guys know this It's right when you fall in love and you know, everything in the world is good. Nothing bad could ever happen. And then you have the line. And then the next day, Dumbledore died in an earlier chapter too. This was mentioned. There was a line to Dumbledore begging to die. And I don't remember what chapter it is. I feel terrible. I didn't mention it, but you throw a line in there. Dumbledore begged to die and well, number one, it's, I, I guess it was very prophetic on A and Z's part. But you know, you read that, and you instantly want to know exactly what happened, and you instantly get this image in your head of Dumbledore begging to die that it just doesn't make any sense to you. You know, especially prior, you know, Half Blood Prince, but especially you know, even especially while reading this, and you know, you you go, you flash back, and it's a brilliant day. You're out by the lake. It's Hogwarts. It's a time of relative tranquility. And all of a sudden, you know, chaos strikes out of nowhere. And, and the Hogwarts Lake, you know, essentially evaporates and the water is sucked out and the mer people are destroyed. And Dennis Creevy is, is, you know, is, you know, just sucked into this and, and, and is killed. And there's just chaos and there's pandemonium. And, uh, you know, you, you, you see dementors, you know, approaching the school and, you know, no one knows what's happening, and they're all together, but they, no one knows what's going to happen. And don't worry, everybody, Dumbledore's here. And you see Professor McGonagall, Professor Fig, and Dumbledore charge down. And picture yourself. You're that 11-year-old Harry Potter. You just came to school. You're, you know, you're sitting in front of the mirror of Erised. Dumbledore can fix anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what you have is, as soon as there's a tremor, Dumbledore falls. And the minute you know that Dumbledore fell, that implies you Dumbledore didn't anticipate something, Dumbledore was caught unawares, and it instantly shatters that image of Dumbledore as the wise old man who can fix any problem that you have. Well, Mac, Mac does bring up this point. He says... Um, and this is Mac on our forums. Uh, for yeah, Mac on the forums. He says, okay, Dumbledore needs to drop him right there, where the Dark Lord uh, is saying... Uh, Tom does not exist. He has been dead for many years, but I thank you for the greeting. And he put his eyes flicker to Harry, and he says lazily, Crucio. And um, and that, that's when Max says, okay, Dumbledore needs to drop him right there. Yet, 
yes, there's an army of dementors, but we're talking about the death of the Dark Lord. And honestly, the teachers in seventh and sixth years can't take hundreds of dementors. I find that sort of hard to believe. One of the few faults I have with After the End. I have um, I have faults with this flashback, but actually not the ones that Mac had. I find it totally believable that if there was an army of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Dementors, and if you know th- there was an army of Death Eaters there, and you have a bunch yeah. of you know unprepared students and a few professors in the castle, many of whom could not perform the, or yeah. the, the Patronus spell, I easily could see them overrunning it. And, and, killing everybody, and I don't think that Dumbledore would risk killing Tom Riddle or killing Voldemort, because Voldemort would then unleash that upon the school, and Dumbledore is, number one, fiercely protective of the school. Dumbledore is fiercely protective of the school, and one thing that After the End does very well, and it does this again in later chapters, is it shows if anything attacked Hogwarts, if anything killed all of the students, you know, seven years' worth of wizards, that would have a devastating impact on the wizarding community. It would essentially kill almost an entire generation of people. (laughs) And, you know, it's just, you know, I think that the story just really gets the scope of what could happen very well, and I don't think Dumbledore would mess with that. My problem with the chapter, and and there's many things I I like with it, and this is, you know, to echo something Renna said last week, I love the fact that, you know, Lavender Brown and, and the background characters are out there with their wands raised, ready to defend everybody. I love the fact that they're watching out for the younger students. I love the fact that yeah. you know there's just those little details that you know you can picture them pushing people behind them to, to defend them. Um, you know, Professor Fake pulling what? Dennis's body out of the water. Um, and I'll wrap up fast. You know, it just one thing. And I they ha- show from. No, go ahead. And they show from Ron's point of view that this is the first time any of them have seen Voldemort. Yes. Yeah, I think a lot of fanfic writers uh, forget that the trio hasn't all seen him when they defend that Voldemort exists and stuff. You know, I think they usually take a cop out. Oh, you know, they were there. They saw him win. And I really like the description of Ron turning and seeing Voldemort come out of the lake and, and him coming to realize that he feels like he's known him all along exactly how he pictured him. I think that it's interesting that, I mean, one of the things that I've always said about this story is that I like the way they've treated a lot of these ancillary characters. You know, we see, like you said, Lavender Brown. We see her as being this, like, vapid airhead in in so many stories. That's how she's, she's yeah, exactly. It's one one, you know. That's how she's portrayed is this just mindless girl, you know, <laughs> something like that. And I love how in this story they give her the opportunity to be the Gryffindor that she is. Yeah. Right. I really, really like that. One thing I didn't like about this chapter is I did not like the – it almost seemed so badly forced just – you know, I understand that sometimes, you know, A and Z have to make the plot work. They need Draco to live next door. You know, they need, you know, her Sirius to pop into the study. You know, there's different things that need to have happen. They needed to get a thousand Dementors, and they needed to get the Death Eaters, and they needed to get Voldemort to Hogwarts because they had to kill Dumbledore. I found, you know, the fact that they didn't seal the lake from the Durmstrang uh, vessel as it left at the end of the Goblet of the Fire novel. 
I found that interesting that they connected it to that. I think that one of the things I love best about this fic is that they took very plausible scenarios that could have arised post Goblet of Fire, and they made them come to life. And that one of the things we keep talking about is, oh my god, they predicted this, they predicted this, they predicted this. I don't think anyone could have possibly predicted the fact that you know the Germ Strike ship leaving the school was going to be relevant to you know the death of a major character. It just seemed too right. hokey. It just seemed a little too... Tr- not... I want to say trivial, not, you know, trivial in what happened, but almost it seemed like a little bit of, you know, trivia. Oh, if you'll remember, the ship dropped through the you know, the lake and there was a hole and blah, 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 blah. I just thought that was a little, uh, uh, that was a little uh, too forced. I want to point out that when I was reading this scene, I was, I have to tell you, I was more scared about uh, Dennis dying than Voldemort and the Dementors actually showing up at Hogwarts. And, and killing everybody. Like, I think I was just going, oh my gosh, they're not going to let that little boy die. And, I mean, I knew he'd be dead. Yeah. We know at the beginning. You know what? Uh, you just that made... he's dead. <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's just, he died so horribly. And you're just going, oh my gosh. And everyone's just watching in horror that, and not, nobody can do anything. And like, and I do, I remember reading and going, wow, I, I feel for this kid who, doesn't mean anything special to me necessarily, you know, and I'm more scared of him dying than all this chaos that's happening. Yeah, you know what, too, and you just made me jump on, I can now, uh, you, you just made me jump on something here. This fic is at its strongest when it says very little. It was a good leather, you know, Sirius mm-hmm. was touched. Very simple things that these characters do, th- simple thoughts they have very you know, concise things that they say. It's the little things that we're looking for here. And it's the same thing in, in, in uh, J.K. Rowling's canon. It's the little things. One of the, the the line I always remember when I think of Half-Blood Prince is that Neville and Luna were waiting around for you know something to happen. They were waiting to be useful, and they kept checking their DA coins because that's how they knew they would be called upon. And you just picture these two very lonely people who want to make a difference again and really have no other way to do it. It's that it was it was one sentence in the book. It really captures you know those characters mm-hmm. for me. This chapter, you know, Dumbledore is going to die, and there's ways that you could kill off these characters very silently, very painfully, kill the spare. It's just. When, when the series is as strong, you know, series going through the veil, very small, quick things, you, you almost miss them, they're so fast. Yeah. This chapter, it kind of, it seemed so out of place in this story because it literally has, you know, a thousand Dementors, Voldemort himself on the grounds of Hogwarts coming through, you know, this hole in the lake that, you know, doesn't seem like it should be there. And, and when, you know, Dumbledore sacrifices himself, they're all banished to the end of the earth. It just seems so, like, it, I don't know, and I, and, I, and I don't mean to, you know, be bashing A and Z, because I'm sure they needed a way to do this. It just seems so over the top. It just seemed like there was a much quieter way they could I kept have done wondering where, I kept wondering where the end of the earth was, and I thought, oh, well, I look, there's people there. <laughs> That's what I thought, too. <laughs> I'm picturing them in the, could you picture, like, could you picture Voldemort in the middle of, like, a J.C. Penny somewhere in, like, 
you know, Northwest Arkansas. Like, and they're all looking. Well, my question was, you know, McGonagall, you know, was obviously, she was very heartbroken that Dumbledore had died. And, you know, the minute you know, Professor Fig says that he's gone, she crumbles. My thought is, they can aberrate right back. You better get to look at that hole in the lake because there's nothing to prevent them from just coming right back 20 seconds later. <laughs> like, how far away are they? Could you imagine, though, because, you know, here, huh? here's the thing. There's all these apparition warts. Could you imagine Voldemort, a very pissed off Voldemort in line at the apparition point with the thousand Dementors behind him wearing, like, these suits and fake glasses trying to get through? Annabelle and Zenia, we love you. We have never laughed this hard, and this is when we disagree with what you wrote. So just throwing that out there. Oh my God. <laughs> Makes me laugh that we all had the same kind of thoughts, and <sighs> I just can't, I seriously, I just kept going, oh, what, what about the people who were at the end of the earth? Like, <laughs> they all got killed because of all this evil wizard showed up with all these dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> And also, you know, it, it brings back that whole, um, it, to me, it brings back the image of when, uh, in Goblet of Fire, when Harry was talking about getting letters from Sirius that are delivered by large tropical birds, <laughs> and he makes the comment that he doesn't think Dementors would do well in a sunny climate. And so I get that image too. So if they're banished to the other end of the world from England, that would yeah, be like Hawaii. But that, I guess that's the, that's the problem with this. You, you just picture this thing, you know, you, you, you try and take the death of Dumbledore so seriously, and you basically have his last. His last request was that if anything ever happened to him, all the bad guys get banished to Hawaii. <laughs> I, that's what I can't stomach about it, you know. <laughs> All right. Oh, no, I, I can just see Voldemort with a pair of shades on his head going, I guess it could be worse. There you go. And he apparently... <laughs> did it. My tie. Oh, God. I'll kill, I'll kill the kid later. <laughs> but I guess... He, but what we're supposed to take from this chapter and what we do, you know, parts of it are very hokey. But what I, what I take from this flashback is that the minute Ron got Hermione, he lost her. Because the next day... Everything changes. Dumbledore is dead. You see McGonagall on the ground sobbing. You saw Harry almost killed right before his eyes. You know, Dennis Creevy died. Children were killed. You know, these older students had to care for the younger students and their kids themselves, but they're no longer kids. They're, you know, they're essentially adults now themselves. And you, 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 you see, you know, poor Professor McGonagall just dropping to Dumbledore's body and Dumbledore giving his life for everything. And what you got the sense of is from that moment, they were on the run. The next happy moment they had, Hermione's parents were tortured, you know, at the same time. And he's never had her to himself until now. And now she's leaving. And like I said before, he can't forgive her for that because she is completely justified. And I think he gets that. I really think he gets that she's justified. But he, he doesn't know what he wants to do with his life, and he just doesn't want anyone else to go. He wants everyone to just stay with him because he's comfortable there, and you know, for everything he's been through, he doesn't want to lose that comfort. And these two right. cap, these two characters, you know, Ron and Hermione, they can't seem to just get through that. And you even have you know the moment at the end of the chapter where Hermione is trying to crack jokes and Ron isn't biting, and you know he's furious that she told Harry first. Well. She's trying to tell you. You haven't listened. And then he makes jokes about, well, why don't you go off and date Harry? It's just, he's so, 
he's firing everything he has, and it's the only way he can deal with this. And this is just not the time for these two. Not the time. What did y'all think about Colin Creevy being the one to uh, carry his brother's body back to Hogwarts? Did y'all think? I thought personally that somebody else should have done it. They levitated the body. Didn't well, they? well, okay. Yeah. Yes, someone else should have done it, but. You have to understand that this is a kid. He's just lost his brother. And, I mean, and it's like I said before, people who have been traumatized do not think rationally. And it could okay. be, you know, it's it's like with serious, not serious, it's like with Cedric and Harry in the graveyard when Cedric says, take my body back to my parents. And even though it would be so much easier for Harry to escape without a dead body, he does it anyway. Yeah. And it's matter. that same thing, you know, Dennis is dead. And Colin saw his brother die, and now all he can think about is, I need to bring this body back to my family. I guess Someone else should have done it, but, but I don't think Colin would have let them. Yeah, and you don't now, want to be the one telling Colin he can't get near the body. <laughs> I mean... Now, Mac in the forums brings up one more point I want to bring up. And he says that uh, after all this happens, um, Hermione is explaining the spell that Dumbledore used to expel Lord Voldemort. She's doing it right after her death. Um, and he says, I do not, I do find it hard to believe that she can have that much calm and is able to recite a spell from memory like that after such a situation. I just, I don't buy it. She's such a bookworm, but that's stretching it. It was exposition. What did y'all it was, think? I think it was exposition. Um, there's a term in the Star Trek fandom um, one of the characters is going to be a cabbage head this week. So the cabbage head character doesn't understand what's going on, so another character can explain it to them. So you have, you know, Hermione. Oh, I know what that spell is. That's the spell where X, Y, and Z happens. And Professor McGonagall can say, brilliant, Hermione. That's exactly what happened. And it's just, it's a way of getting the information out there without it um, having to come from the narrator. It, it, it did seem clumsy. Okay. I thought the whole spell itself was clumsy, but yeah, it just... <laughs> What do I do now? Oh, it's beautiful. Okay. And then it ends. How does this chapter end? It ends with basically with Hermione being alone. Hermione's alone. Ron's alone. Oh, Ron. Ron wants to follow Hermione, but he's done enough damage. And we were actually going to cover chapter fifteen tonight. We're going to put that off to next week. We've been talking forever about these three chapters, and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing these it. These were hard. These were very hard chapters. And while chapter fifteen is short. It is definitely not sweet, and it really leads into the following chapter. And Renna thought it would be awful if we left you guys with a cliffhanger, which apparently we've done anyway. So we're going to um, end uh, our discussion well, okay. there. But this, this cliffhanger at the end of this chapter is not as bad, because anyone knows from reading the summary that this is a Ron, Hermione, Harry, Ginny story. So Ron and Hermione are going to be fine. <laughs> for next week's episode, for episode 5, let's plan on chapters 15 through 19. And we're actually going to step up our schedule a little bit, so um, you may get uh, episodes five and six a little bit closer together than normal until we can get back on track. So you might get a burst of reading assignments from us at Perfect Weekly. So we hope you enjoy that. We'd like to thank um, once more uh, Leela Starsky and Danielle for our artwork. We would like to thank very much. Uh, Harry and the Potters. We'd like to ask anyone who has any comments about anything they've heard, any comments they would like to share with us, uh, you can email us at staff at potterfickweekly.com or you can email uh, Rinna, R-I-N-N-A, uh, Kim, Ryan, or Jen um, at potterfickweekly 
www.thepodcastmedia.com um, if you want to email them directly. Visit our forums. We have a great community developing in our forums. We're having lots of great discussions, becoming very much like a family. It's a small, very intimate setting. Uh, visit our forums at potterfickforum.com or there's a link right on potterfickweekly.com. And uh, be a vocal part of the show. We're a bunch of people talking about something we really love, but we would really enjoy that you guys took part as well. Thanks for listening. And if uh, we haven't run you off yet, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> and good night, everybody. Hello, everyone. This is Shenya. And Ryan asked me to take a look at the Potterfic Weekly forums and see if there were any non-scary questions that I wanted to answer for this week. Uh, since I can't remember a whole lot about After the End at this point, I thought that the least scary questions had to do with how Arabella and myself actually sat down and co-wrote this story together. I see that Jen asked if Arabella and I still keep in touch, and we do very much keep in touch. Uh, we live about four hours away from each other, but we still email and see each other on occasion, not as much as we would like, uh, but we're still very good friends. I'll be honest, though, I'm not sure how it ended up just being myself and Arabella on the credit lines of writing after the end. We did do most of the actual writing for the story, but the idea for the story and the brainstorming and a lot of the ideas really were a larger group project. Uh, and the people who provided the most input were the people who were our uh, co-workers, co-volunteers at the Sugar Quill website, which is the website that Arabella and myself founded back in 2001. Without the help of Jedi Bodicea, we probably wouldn't have any plot to After the End. It probably would just be a, a big romance story. Uh, we really sort of started writing it um, as a more fluffy romance type story. And she was like, um, you know, if you want this to be interesting to people, maybe you should have some sort of plot to it that has a little bit of action in it. And that's when we sort of, in a series of chats, Worked out a bunch of the stuff, uh, the stuff with Culparat and um, the stuff with Azkaban and things like that. But that was actually not in the very early ideas for After the End. Of course, we didn't plan on it being 43 chapters or however long it was either. So um, it sort of grew out of control. I think what happened was that we wrote... We had some ideas, and we we sat down and we sort of plotted some of them out together. Um, wrote a couple of snippets here and there. I think that line from one of the chapters that was discussed last week, uh, you know, where Fleur Delacour was bored with men. I think Arabella wrote that, you know, that was one of the first things she wrote for this story. Um, we just thought that was such a great line. And once we got more into things and started plotting them out a little bit more, we would sort of divvy things up. So we did sit down and sort of write some master outlines at various points throughout the story. And, you know, then we would say, hey, do you want to write this part? Do you want to write that part? And um, we just sort of break it up from there. I will say that Arabella is a much more um, descriptive writer than I am. And, you know, I tend to I tend to leave a lot out. So I can remember a lot of instances where I would write a section of a chapter and, you know, send it off to her and she would sort of fill in the blanks for me because I wouldn't, you know, I would forget to tell people sort of important things because they were in my head and I would just forget to write them down. The other thing about After the End is that we had 
a team of really wonderful beta readers for the story. I mean, every chapter that we published um, had like usually two or three people besides ourselves looking it over, reading it, commenting on it, making suggestions, and so on. So um, it really, it really was a group process. It wasn't just two of us writing it. I think um, it was more of a, a community story in a lot of ways. The other thing that I think is important about After the End and the and the way it turned out and the way it was written is that it really was sort of a natural progression for the Sugar Quill site. And I don't know how many people realize that After the End is really closely related to the Sugar Quill. Uh, you know, the Sugar Quill was a site that Arabella and myself founded. The main goal was supposed to be uh, to get people excited and interested about writing by using the Harry Potter books as a jumping off point. And, you know, of course, there are Harry Potter discussion forums and things like that. But I think we both really felt like it would be nice for us to have some sort of, um, you know, big story that a lot of it, it was, it was written. I don't know if I could say it was written to be an example because we'd both written fan fiction before and posted it on our site, but we really wanted to do something that we felt was in the spirit of the sugar quill. Um, and the sugar quill we always felt was, in the spirit of Harry Potter. So this was really sort of our way of um, trying to figure out what would happen in future books and, and sort of our way of giving giving a gift to the Sugar Quill. And someone on the forums asked if we were excited that our prediction, some of our predictions came true. And, um, you know, actually, I, I don't know that we were that excited because I don't know that we really felt like they were predictions. I mean, we certainly predicted a lot of things that did not come true. I mean, one thing that really stands out in my head is the character of Cho Chang, who we haven't really gotten to in After the End yet. But, you know, I had a, I had this, this hope that Cho would maybe turn out to be a certain type of person. And actually, I think now that I was thinking of Tonks before Tonks was ever written. Um, you know, I was feeling the need for that type of character in the story somehow. Um, but, you know, did I predict Tonks? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, Bill and Fleur, and look what happened with Bill and Fleur. I mean, but I wouldn't say we predicted that either. I, we were just, we were lucky guessing, and not even lucky guessing. We we spent a lot of time with those Harry Potter books, reading them and rereading them and trying to figure out what was going to happen. And, you know, Bill and Fleur, as an example, um, is we thought there was enough in that hint at the end of Goblet of Fire where Fleur's looking Bill over to make something more out of that. So if we guess some things correctly, I you know, I like to think that it was just because we love the books and read the books closely enough um, that we really understood where J.K. Rowling was heading with the story. Although, you know, I have no idea what to expect with Deathly Hallows. All I can say is that I really, really, really hope that Harry lives and Hermione lives and Ron lives and that everybody lives except maybe Draco. I don't care so much. And, you know, we killed off Hagrid and after the end, and I, I was always pretty sure that he would be a goner, but I don't know. You know, the last couple books, watching him fighting people and how his giant skin just sort of deflects spells and things like that, I think Hagrid might be pretty safe. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's the Genya death pool for this week. 
and I just wanted to take a, this opportunity to thank Ryan and Kim and Rinna and Jen and everyone um, at Potterfic Weekly for deciding to do After the End um, as part of your podcast and for um, saying such nice things about it. Um, it's been it's really it's fun for me to listen to people going back and talking about it. It's like a nice review, and um, it's bringing back a lot of memories. So thank you very much. <laughs> 